Hello, my fellow Westorians. Happy New Year. It is January 1st, as we are recording what here. What year? 2023, in case you were confused. I'm not sure. Maybe it's a different year where you're from, where you're listening right now. If you're listening from the future or from the past, if you have one of those fancy listen to future podcasts devices that don't exist, but maybe they do in the future. So you can listen to podcasts from the past. It's really great to be here. I'm excited that we're streaming on New Year's Day. We streamed on Christmas. That was fun too. So we're really hitting all the holidays so far, hitting the ground running. Sean, how was your Christmas? You weren't here. We had a nice episode without you, but (laughs) (laughs) it was great that you weren't here. Now we got to deal with you being, but no, it was great. Just kidding, of course. It's awesome to have you back. How was your time off? It was great. We had good family time and had some, I don't know, for a lot of people, maybe trouble, but I thought beautiful snow. We got like a foot of snow here. Wow. That's cool. We did not get snow here. We did have an internet mm-hmm. outage this morning. We almost thought we'd have to postpone the stream, but it came back about a half an hour before. So just in time. Also, shout out to our good friend, Nina, who has provided us with some excellent notes, as she often does. Check out her blog at goodqueenalley.tumblr.com. Right now, the front post on her page is a question about whether John Snow could have married say, Maya Stone or another highborn bastard and maybe gotten lands and things like that. How would that have worked out if such a pairing had occurred or in other pairings of similar types? How has that gone or, or how does that work? As opposed to going to the wall if he hadn't gone to the wall. Right, right. Because obviously going to the wall means you're not marrying anyone or at least you're not supposed to. <laughs> he may yet break that rule, but he may have you know, an out, a legal way around that. We'll see. That is not our topic for today, though. (laughs) We are not here to talk about Jon Snow, even though there's a big S on my shirt and it's a white S. Mm -hmm. It is not a white S referring to snow. In fact, it's a snake. Aha! It represents the sea snake. Was there a snow snake? That would be cool if there was a snow. There's a stone snake. (laughs) Oh, yeah. There there are, and he did vanish into the snow. So maybe... uh, maybe... Precedent established. (laughs) That's right. That's Mm -hmm. right. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode was voted on by patrons. What's funny is that it didn't actually win the poll, but it's the one I started working on. Sometimes we have the polls out a couple weeks ahead. And well, not having it a couple weeks ahead this time was, I wouldn't call it a problem, but it did cause a slight tweak in how we prepare. Normally, I just get going on whatever's winning after 24 hours because, well, the episode's on Sunday. I got to get going. I got to start working on it. But over the course of the week, Valarian fell behind to Basilisk Isles, but I'd already written more than half of the episode by that point. So we'll just do both of them. Obviously not today. We're not going to do both topics today, but Basilisk Isles will be next, although not next week. Next week, our episode was Daniele Bellelli that uh, we recorded a little while ago, so that'll be released in place of a live stream, but at the same time. The other topics that were defeated in the poll were On the Other Hands, 
which was going to be devoted to the first set of Hands of the King, starting with the one for Egg on the Conqueror that had been Oros Baratheon, all the way to Otto. So all the ones before the dance. More than that, and it's probably more than one episode worth. And the other topic we had up for voting was Baylor the Blessed, the king right after Daron the Young Dragon. That was the last episode before House of the Dragon season started, so that would have been a, a place to pick up. But the winner, as you can see, was House Valarian. Yeah, you- so yeah, you can vote on these. I think that's one of the best features of our Patreon because it's real control over the material that is coming out. That's right. And we do a lot of these polls and we'll do polls for scripted content, not as frequently, but that comes up as well. Yeah, y'all can join the quorum to help decide what episodes get picked by signing up to be a patron. You also get bonus episodes, things like that. You can also join us on Spotify to be a subscriber. You don't get the voting on there. We don't have the technology to push the voting on Spotify, but you still get the bonus episodes and you get to the, the satisfaction of supporting one of your favorite podcasts because hopefully that's us. Hopefully we're one of your favorites. And that satisfaction has got to be worth at least a million dollars a year. A million right? dollars <laughs> a year. If we could only get one subscriber to pay us that much. <laughs> <laughs> Another value, I think, to being a patron is getting our document. Isn't that something they get? They get to see the document that we have for these. That's like true. That's got to be like a huge resource of consolidated information, a bunch of topics if you're ever doing some kind of research, which I think a lot of our fans do. That's true. That's um, true. We got both the scripts and a lot of the notes are in there occasionally. So trivia question. Speaking of questions, uh, who does Sansa apparently consider the handsomest man she's ever seen? Uh, uh, less obscure than some of our trivia questions. But still tricky. Some of you might know this one right off the top of your head. Some of you might figure it out. Some of you may have to guess, and you might have a good chance of getting it. Just to, to clarify, I might eliminate a bunch of guesses out there. Sansa has never actually seen me. But yeah, that's true. She has <laughs> never seen Sean. That's true. So yeah, be, don't guess Sean. It's not Sean. There's or Kristen Cole. Or Sean. Kristen Cole, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> During the era portrayed in House of the Dragon slash The Dance of the Dragons, House Valarian is at their peak. When Lord Corlys joins Rhaenyra's side, it's a huge windfall, the type of ally who shifts the balance of power by themselves. If, for example, Corlys had joined with the Greens, the war may not have started. The Greens would have such a big advantage. Well, the Blacks may still have gone for it, but it would have been a horrible imbalance. I think Damon still would have wanted to go for it, but it would have been such a big imbalance. Is there another individual or house that could have had such a swing? Um, the top one? Maybe not for them because of also because of their proximity. Like, given that their island is right next yeah. to Dragonstone, there's really no equivalent. If they had been an enemy, it would have been a huge danger or detriment to them. And having them as an ally is, well, it's, it's perfect. So, yeah, it's hard to compare someone else. In terms of equal power elsewhere in the realm, you could say the Lannisters, maybe. The Hightowers are similar power, different. Yeah, there may be a couple others that would have the power and forces and wealth or whatever that are equivalent, but they're farther away. Right. So they can they have more time to deal with it in one way or the and other. Proximity to right it. nearby, that powerful swinging from enemy to ally is pretty humongous. Or just neutral. Like at first, remember, as we recall, Corley's first was like, maybe we just stay out of it. And Rainey's is like, the time for that has passed. <laughs> I'm <laughs> the one who wanted us to stay out of it for sort of, and now it's too late. Anyway, that would have been that would have been a big deal. There's only a few mild spoilers for House of the Dragon going forward. Mostly we're going to be able to avoid them because we've already done a whole episode on the Sea Snake's life and career. So, we don't have to repeat that. There would be obviously a lot of spoilers for House of the Dragon in that. So, we don't but we don't have to repeat them because we've already done it. 
So you can just check that episode out if you are don't mind the spoilers. And of course, there's a lot to say about his life before any of the House of the Dragon events. We cover his voyages as best as possible. So that's pretty cool. Not to mention, we have a scripted series on the Dance of the Dragons with Radio Westeros, where some of the in-world of during the war events are covered. You know, we're obviously past the point of the TV show there. So we'll be able to focus on the time before the dance and the times well after it, all the way up to where they are now in A Song of Ice and Fire going into the Winds of Winter. We have also covered the life of Oakenfist, Alan Valerian, who in an episode dedicated entirely to him. He should eventually appear in House of the Dragon as well. He really pops up all Is over he the place. The next Lord of Driftmark after Corliss? Basically, yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he is. Not basically, he is. Yeah. And he's young when he takes over and has a long tenure. So since he gets an, his old, an episode of his own as well, we're basically going to skip two lords in a row, the two most famous, as we move into the era where they start to have serious decline. But it isn't just one thing that causes their decline. You can't just pin it all on Oakenfist. You can't just pin it all on the Sea Snake, certainly. You can't pin it all on the Dance of the Dragons. You can't pin it on any one thing. But all those things combined. Yeah, all those things combined and some more things that we have yet to have mentioned. Oakenfist came up in our episode on Daron the Young Dragon as the naval commander there. But... Daron died at age 18 in the year 161, and Oakenfist was still around in the year uh, circa, circa 175 to 171. It's not entirely clear when he died. He vanished at sea. So you don't know. How do you put it? You can't put a date on that exactly. He might still be alive. That's right. He's still out there sailing like Gendry rowing around. <laughs> He's like, Shh, Gendry, pfft. That's nothing. <laughs> I'll show you long time rowing. <laughs> So our story today will omit large chunks between the years of 129 and 175, since not only are they covered elsewhere, it's going to hit, a lot of that's going to hit TV, so we'll have a chance to to hit it again when that comes around. That said, there's plenty of other characters other than the Sea Snake and Oakenfist during those times. So we're not going to entirely skip those periods. We're going to talk about some of the characters who are maybe a little off page, who have less to do with the war, and and bloodlines. We're going to want to connect Valarian bloodlines here and there, and that's going to involve some pass-through in those eras or at least that one era. First mention, they do not appear in the main text of A Game of Thrones book one, but they do appear in the appendix. So they certainly existed. They just didn't come up in the story. They're listed among the the houses sworn to Dragonstone. But they appear right away in the next book, The Clash of Kings prologue, the longest chapter of the series. Here we go. Quote. Crescent looked over the knights and captains and lords sitting silent. Lord Keltigar, aged and sour, wore a mantle patterned with red crabs picked out in garnets. Handsome Lord Valarian chose sea green silk, the white gold seahorse at his throat matching his long, fair hair. Lord Bar Emin, that plump boy of 14, was swathed in purple velvet trimmed with white seal. Sir Axel Florent remained homely, even in russet and fox fur. Pius, Lord Sunglass, wore moonstones at throat and wrist and finger. Nina says, note also that it's Lord Valarian whom Davos uses as a sort of synecdoche for the aristocratic court on and around Dragonstone sworn to stand. It's well, Davos is thinking, quote, he would have given much to know what Lord Valarian was thinking. He acknowledges that, quote, one such as Valarian would never confide in him. So he's thinking of him as having this storied history of all those gathered. It's the Valarians that have the most 
Arrogance. Maybe the most arrogance, but definitely the most <laughs> to be proud of as well. as like he, if he's going to perceive, he's just guessing. He doesn't actually know that this guy is arrogant. He's just guessing. Like part of this is Davos being in his own head. Davos is not entirely wrong. I'm not, I'm not. He's a good guesser. Yeah, he's right? a good guesser. <laughs> like these guys are arrogant, but he, he, there are some exceptions. He doesn't know which ones are which. Some of them are worse than others, etc. <laughs> so he thinks of this is the one that he thinks, well, I'm, if I'm small by comparison to one of these other houses, it's this one, right? You know, other than maybe Baratheon, who he's, he's obviously well impressed with Stannis. <laughs> but Stannis isn't dressed fancifully, as we know. He, he tones it down in that regard. Yeah, Stannis doesn't prop up the pride of his ancient house very often, right? <laughs> no. like his, yeah, yeah. Not in the way he dresses. Yeah, no, he, yeah. <laughs> quick, quick question. Sure. We don't definitively know the house words of House Valerian. Correct. We have right? a strong guess, one that's sort of substituted. It's the... The old, the true, the brave. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's it. Yeah. And yeah, that's not official, but it is effectively official because we haven't had anything that's actually official that, that took its place or replaced it. it we do know there's sigil and colors, yeah. right? It's a seahorse on a blue-green background, silver seahorse, blue-green background, right? That's right. And we do know that seahorses do exist in the world of Westeros and Essos because someone asked George, is that a stylized, fanciful animal within the context or is that a real animal in that world? And George said it's real. So they do. So seahorses have been seen <laughs> by someone in the past. Someone of House Valarian is aware of what they look like and, and chose that sigil. It's not just like a griffin They're... where the griffins apparently aren't real. Apparently. apparently. I mean, they may have been engineered. Uh, griffins were apparently <laughs> built by Valyrians. For real, they were apparently, apparently engineered, but they don't, they're not naturally occurring. Seahorses are probably naturally occurring like they are in the real world. <laughs> I wonder if the, there's a fantastic element to George's world, but maybe the seahorses are large enough to be Ooh. ridden by oh. a human, you know, like 10-foot seahorses that... <laughs> it sounds like a fanciful made-up animal, right? Seahorse, yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> what? Just use your imagination even more than that. I, I dare you. But uh, Men get pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, their men do get pregnant. That's crazy. <laughs> There's also sea dragons. They have them here at the Atlanta Aquarium, which is one of the best aquariums in the world, and that's the only place they've ever bred in captivity. And that's another animal that just doesn't sound real. Sea dragon. It's like ice dragon or something. Of course, a sea dragon's like smaller than this thermos yeah. I'm holding, and it looks <laughs> like a, it's covered in branches. <laughs> it looks it's the most unthreatening thing you've ever seen. <laughs> it's like, why do they choose dragon for that? It's like a... They've got a good uh, marketing agent. Yeah. They've got a good PR campaign going on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it looks like a sea cuteness. Like, that's what it should have been called. <laughs> After the Battle of the Blackwater, we get a little follow-up on those lords of the Narrow Sea after the Battle of the Blackwater. They, they look a little different. They're in different shape after that. Quote, Lord Alistair waved his hand feebly. Lord Keltigar was captured and bent the knee. Monford Valarian died with his ship. The Red Woman burned Sunglass. And Lord Bar Emin is 15, fat, and feeble. Those are your lords of the Narrow Sea. Yikes. Okay, so... The wide sea. Yeah, <laughs> not, not so great. So Monford Valarian isn't thumbing his nose at Davos anymore, is he? <laughs> so they've fallen even farther. This is to show that the lords of the Narrow Sea were once mighty. For one thing, House Valarian wasn't just lumped in with the lords of the Narrow Sea. They were extremely mighty on their own. You wouldn't call the Lannisters just one of the lords of the West. I mean, you might in certain contexts, but that's 
not a very accurate way to refer to such a powerful old house, right? That's just goes to show this is you don't get referred to that way if you're in that category. So this alone gives you a clue. They are technically one of the lords of the narrow sea. That's not like false. <laughs> and it has been true for a long time. But I think you see where I'm going with that. They, they used to be considered so much more. But that's where things are now. We'll come back to that at the end. Let's go back to the beginning as far back as we can go. Often, this is my favorite part, the early history. Here's a quick quote to set us up. Though never dragon riders, the Valerians had for centuries remained the oldest and closest allies of the Targaryens. The sea was their element, not the sky. Four centuries, multiple centuries, at least two centuries, probably three, four, five. And that was written in the year 100 AC, that quote that Sean just read. So what we can glean from that is that the sea has been their element for centuries. It had been their element for centuries. That seems a pretty straightforward conclusion based on how that's written, which implies they were a naval powerhouse or at least navally oriented back in the time of Valyria. And given the Targaryens were so powerful then and, and the Valyrians have been connected to them for so long, you'd think that they were pretty powerful in their own right, just not as powerful as the Targaryens. We, we have some clues that it is several centuries, 500 or more years maybe, yeah. right? But I, I just do think it's interesting, especially back when we were first going through the world of ice and fire, just the nature of how history and propaganda works that they only really have to be 200 years for Corliss to tout their centuries old house. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's true, that's true. Even if it was 180, he'd round up. Yeah, you know? <laughs> two, yeah, it's true. Yeah, decades and decades and decades, yeah. <laughs> It's like, that was two decades, man. (laughs) (laughs) It's also said that it's traditional for, quote, sons of the seahorse to be given a taste of the seafarer's life. This may have also been true back in Valyria. They probably didn't have the seahorse sigil. They may have been associated with seahorses in some way. But remember, sigils and heraldry are, are more of a Westeros thing. So that's something they picked up, something to be more Westerosi, like the Targaryens did with their three headed dragon. Aegon didn't embraced the three-headed dragon until he set off on the conquest. He unfurled it. It was like a big moment of the beginning of the conquest. So it's really neat. I'm super interested in maybe one day we'll get more on it, on what House Valarian looked like back in Valyria before the Doom. They had been connected for a long time. It says for centuries they had remained the oldest and closest allies of the Targaryens. And you think they got made fun of for their name in Valyria? <laughs> like, really? It's a little close. All right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what does that word in Valyrian like? Is it <laughs> still so similar or is it just in common? The common tongue is when it seems more, it comes yeah. out more similar. I don't know. I, I'm guessing it's, it is similar also in their language. It's like, I mean, maybe George just didn't think about it. He's like, well, it's written. Who cares? But I mean, before the TV show, there were still audiobooks. It was confusing in the audiobooks. So, George, tisk tisk for that one, Valarian. It's like naming an American family American, like A M E R A C O. Yeah, we're the Americans from America. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> yeah. So, I'm guessing that they were on the coast or an island. I mean, I don't know for sure. Because Valyria itself was inland, surrounded by volcanoes. And maybe there was river access to the sea from there somehow. But I've always kind of pictured it as fairly landlocked, the capital. that you had to go elsewhere. You had to go down the road, the Valyrian roads, to get to the coast. 
And then there would be ports there. They may have, Valeria may have had a connected port. Like Athens was very far inland, but it had Reyes. I think it was called the Piraeus was their port. And it was considered part of Athens, but it was really far away comparatively for how most port cities are just right there. Part of the whole thing, you know? You can get away with that little distance between your city and your port if you have dragons. Right? That's a true. little less yeah. relevant. But. Yeah, no one's going to come. Like, no one's going to come invade Valyria, right? Like, like they had wars. Well, that's exactly why they won't expect it. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you're, I'm not thinking like a sneaky commander. I'm not thinking like Hannibal, am I? Anyway. You know, if someone was going to take over Valyria, it would be the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> <laughs> no one would see that coming. Not at all. Certainly not the nice red uniforms. <laughs> and yeah, so th- it suggests that both houses are so ancient, what we have in, in terms of history, that they're, we don't know which is older. It's possible House Valarian is actually older than House Targaryen. We don't really know. We know that, of course, it's unlikely House Valarian was ever as powerful as House Targaryen, but maybe there was a time when the Targaryens weren't dragon riders yet. Who knows? We'll go back far enough and things can look a whole lot different. Maybe Valarian had humble origins as well. Maybe it did be maybe it didn't even begin with seafaring, though that would make a lot of sense. No one would be surprised if they started the way they are now. So again, were they on the coast? Do they have an island holding? Trade networks are implied here. If we go back to our Valyrian episodes, recall what we noticed about the maps. Valyria's in the middle. Even now we have this world map. Valyria's in the middle, basically, because it kind of is the middle of the known world in terms of what we know about this planet. Valyria does kind of lie in the, not in the center, but in the middle. And the center and the middle is kind of similar in this context. But obviously now that it's destroyed, it's hard to say it's the center when nothing, everyone just has to avoid it. But when it was literally and figuratively the center of the world, imagine the trade opportunities. I gotta think that House Valarian was a pretty big deal, pretty wealthy even back then, even before the sea snake took that up to another level and made them even richer and even more powerful to a place they had never been before. It's tempting to think of them being on that West Coast because, well, we don't hear about them having a huge amount of contact with the East. When the sea snake sailed to Ashai and did the Jade Gates and all that, it's kind of implied that no one had done that before in his house. Maybe they had back before the doom and knowledge of that was lost. Maybe he even found some old books and maybe he made it sound like he was the first, but he knew better, but wanted to sound more cool about it. Lots of possibilities there. Seems likely they dealt with pirates in the Basilisk Isles. Seems likely they dealt with pirates elsewhere. I mean, anyone in the shipping business in Wester or in Essos would have had to deal with pirates, but they may have also had an official capacity like they are for large periods of time in Westeros, they become the royal fleet, effectively and in name, the equivalent. Was that their role back in Valyria as a protector of Targaryen interests through military presence, not just trading, right? In other words, did they do a lot of one or both? Trading, guarding the seas for other trade, or were they in the business of doing both? Maybe they specialized. Maybe if they were only in the business of protecting shipments, That would explain why they didn't quite go as far and wide and the sea snake did things that hadn't been done before because they were more in the business of protecting shipping and not doing the actual shipping themselves. That would make a lot of sense. It fits pretty well. How does that strike you, Sean? There also might be less need for exploration from ships. 
when you have dragons. Or when like, you're at the center of the world, know. everyone comes to you. You know, you're just like, everyone's yeah. coming to us. We don't need to go find, they're all coming to our big profiting, profitable markets. We're the center of the world. Yeah, yeah. Like one, I don't know, bold thing to do, one part of the adventure or prestige of a sailor in, in real world times was like going past where you could see the coast, you know, mm-hmm. leaving, getting to where the coast wasn't on the horizon anymore to venture out like that. But like when you have dragons and not only can just fly out and come back, but also they just have the height. So you could just see farther out. C- certain values of seafaring are lost or are, are way less valuable, but, but not all values. And in fact, I'm even thinking a little bit about the idea. It was an early, it was a present around 1900. I want to say Woodrow Wilson, but it was like a, a bill he had to sign to like approve more patents. And he's like, I guess, but I don't know what else is going to be invented. I don't know why we need this. You know, like, <laughs> The people in charge can underestimate what else is potentially going to happen with the world, with their people. So I can see maybe the Targaryens or Valerians, Valerians underestimated the role of Valerians. Ah, yes. And no matter what, that's a great point. And no matter what, they would be more outward looking. Like if the Targaryens, it would change over time. You might have a, a lord who's really interested in looking out, but you might have one who's like, nah, we're just going to stay focused on, on what's right in front of us. Like we've got enough to do here. We've got so much wealth, so much business is happening right here in front of us. Why do we need to look anywhere else? Well, the Valarians aren't going to, even though they're tied to House Targaryen, that doesn't mean that every single thing they do is in lockstep with them. They're still got their ships to worry about. They still have to pay their upkeep on their ships, build new ships, do whatever their jobs are. Maybe when there was wars with Slaver's Bay, they were bringing troops over. Maybe they were ferrying troops to Slaver's Bay. All the conflicts that happened over there where the soldiers had to get there somehow. And House Valarians the best candidate we have for being troop transporters. And given their fortunes weren't entirely tied to House Targaryen, yeah, they would want to have some income of their own, something that wasn't maybe reliant on whatever came from their the people above them. So yeah, but we, and so this brings us to their decision to leave. What a big deal. We talk about how it was for, the, for House Targaryen to leave, given Daenys the Dreamer. They must have trusted her. She must have proven that her prophecies were it. It probably wasn't, as we've said several times, she, it wasn't her first prophecy about the doom. They were like, oh, you're having a dream, are you? The doom, you say? We better get out of here. We better move after living here for thousands of years. Now, of course, she had to have proven herself, but consider House Valarian in this spot. It's one thing if you're in, the, in this family that has proven itself to have prophecies, but consider that none of the other Valyrian houses fled. Whatever proof Daenys the Dreamer offered, however seriously the Targaryens took her, other houses didn't. Valarian apparently did. Was it because they were ordered to? Was it because they were they genuinely on board? Naval pun, huh? With this decision, were they like, yeah, we believe Daenys too? Or were they like, these idiots are going to make us leave <laughs> the freehold over this dream, you know? It's a lot of possibility in between them. Maybe they hedged their bets and were like, well, we'll establish an outpost out here, but we're still going to keep our business back here. Maybe they had their own prophecy. Maybe they had their own. I guess that maybe not a dragon dreamer, a sea dreamer. <laughs> the know? sea dreamer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are other forms of prophecy. Who knows? I, I had a thought, by the way. I almost can't believe it didn't occur to me before that this is, it's kind of similar to, to the story of Superman. Like oh, Kal El hmm. had sort of this vision that their planet was going to be destroyed and they need to leave, but no one else will listen to him. So he sent his son off to, uh, to Earth. Yeah, hmm. that's true. Yeah, so it is a bigger leap of faith for the Valarians in a lot of contexts. Again, we, without knowing specifically what details 
were presented to them or what they learned or what they knew, maybe they were all for it. They're like, yeah, we'd love to establish an outpost out here anyway for trade and, and all that other stuff. Maybe they just liked the idea. Maybe... Like it wasn't post, a, we're in post. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe they're like, hey, we're already <laughs> trading. We're already just to shipping, doing shipping. It's not a, that big a deal to, to have our base of operations over here in Westeros. I don't know. There's a lot of different ways it could have gone. Could have been a cadet branch. Yeah, maybe. Maybe this was the, maybe this was, maybe the, the, the original Valarians, the, the older blood was destroyed. Maybe they stayed behind and paid the price. And the new guys were like, see, should have listened. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're a cadet branch of House Valyrian itself. <laughs> House Valyrian. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Nina writes, it's also hard to say what the internal politics were for the Valyrian freehold in the centuries preceding the Doom. Could there have been some event which ousted the less important Valyrians and, and or Celtigars? Like, maybe they were already out there. We don't know when House Valyrian got to Driftmark. We just know it was before the Targaryens got to Dragonstone. But we also know there were Valyrian traders on Dragonstone for like a century or two before even the House Targaryen got there. How far before House Targaryen did House Valyrian get there is is not something we can really narrow in. It might have been just weeks before House Targaryen. It's like we barely beat them. Or it could have been years or decades or centuries or not, not, probably not multiple centuries, but maybe as much as multiple centuries. That is on the table. We can't eliminate that possibility. So Nina says maybe they were they came out on the wrong side of some internal political strife, some sort of upheaval that made them look elsewhere for their fortunes or f- made them into a, not a full-blown exile, but something that made them relocate or reestablish a base elsewhere because things were getting hot. They needed things to die. Now let's go, let's go hang out on Driftmark for a while while things on Valyria cool down. That's a volcano pun, by the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nina says it's maybe there was a they were just a preliminary scouting force for Valyria. They were like, hey, you guys are the shipping team. You guys are really good at this. Go explore Westeros. We want to find a good spot to hang out. We want to reestablish ourselves or establish ourselves, get a foothold here. You go find us the spot. And they did. They found Driftmark. Maybe they're the ones who found Dragonstone and handed it off. And like, well, volcanoes, this is perfect for y'all. We don't need the volcanoes. We'll take this island next door that doesn't have volcanoes that's good for us. We can set up trading networks here. Thinking back on it, if that did happen, can you imagine the Valarians getting back to like, man, well, you, we found the perfect spot. There's an island of volcanoes and next to it, there's an island that's really fertile for us. I mean, y'all, it's just perfect. It's <laughs> almost like someone wrote it <laughs> with us in mind. <laughs> no, that couldn't be it. That couldn't be it. This is all real, Sean. All very real. <laughs> Nina writes that this this expansion could have been something that was very gradual. It doesn't have to have been like, okay, we need to find a new home quickly, right? I mean, Danny the Dreamer had her dream years before the Doom, apparently. We don't know how many years, but it wasn't like they packed up the next day. They they knew it was coming. They didn't know when. They figured it, well, we, we don't know how much time we have. Better hurry, but it's probably not just next week. If it is, we're, we're screwed. I almost said we're doomed. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I just stopped myself. That would have yeah. been, that was perfect. Driftmark. Let's talk about Driftmark. I think it's actually the real reason they left is that name thing. They're like, we're tired of everyone saying, hey, Valyria. And we go, what? <laughs> well, I wasn't talking to you. I'm like, oh. <laughs> Can I say a couple things from the chat there? Was someone said, like, someone's name being Johnny English. 
Giant or it's English. like Tom Holland being Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, if Tom Holland was Dutch. <laughs> yeah, and we also had Terra Incognita said, the name makes sense if they were the first Valyrian house in Westeros, lost their old name if they had one, because everyone just called them the Valyrians, which was <laughs> oh. eventually just corrupted to Valarian. Oh. They're just like, yeah, the Valyrians, Valyrians. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I like that. People calling them the Valyrians, but they said it wrong. Yeah, They're like they got the, the Westerosi pronunciation sounded like Valarian, and then when the, then when real like the rest of the Valyrians started showing up, they're like, "These are the Valyrians. We're you can keep calling us that old word that you guys got wrong." <laughs> yeah, it kind of makes sense, and it it it's an argument for them having showed up long before the Targaryens. Too. Yeah. What's interesting too about this is this is an ancient history. It's like, well, when you go back, you're like, well, we're not sure, like. Brandon the Builder, like what his deal, some of his, some of the information around him. Maybe his father was another Brandon. Another. It's understandable that history has lost track of that, given that was... Because that was 5,000 years yeah, ago. Yeah, at least. More, yeah. Right? yeah. This is like 500 years ago. So the fact that we don't know who got to Driftmark slash Dragonstone first is a little peculiar. But there's more than just this peculiarity of timing and lack of, of record keeping. There's this odd bit about the Driftwood throne. First of all, Driftmark is called that because it, the way the place it lies in the in Blackwater Bay causes it to see a lot of driftwood to wash ashore on the I think western no eastern shore, and apparently it was put together into a throne at some point or not. We're not sure if the Driftwood throne is made from this driftwood or if it was something that the Valarians had back in Valyria. I'm not sure, but they claim it was a gift from the Merling King, which again, doesn't help us clear up whether it was a thing from Valyria or, or from Blackwater Bay. But that sounds like something from the Age of Heroes, doesn't it? Like that sounds like something from thousands of years. That sounds Age of Heroes stuff. Gift from the Merling King, gift from the Grey King, gift from Land the Clever. Like this sounds like something from back then, but again, it's only 500 years ago, which makes me sound like they were trying to maybe co-opt it. Let's, let's, Nina's take delves into this. Let's read what she has to say. It's also possible the Valarians co-opted an existing story on Driftmark. Compare, say, the Seastone Chair, which is supposed to have always been on the Iron Islands. If the Driftwood Throne predated the Valarians on Driftmark and came from a society which had since disappeared or weakened significantly, the Valarians might have simply inserted themselves into the established mythos of the Driftwood Throne so as to con consolidate their rule on Driftmark. Totally, totally agree with this. Like, with, for lack of a better idea, considering how often this happens, I think I've used this example before. When the Macedonian Greeks took over Egypt after the death of Alexander, well, he, they had, Alexander conquered it, but when it was split into an independent kingdom that was still ruled by a Macedonian monarch named Ptolemy, he just went back and changed Egypt's mythology. It was like there was a god named Macedon, like Macedonia. And, and this is from where these people come from. But yeah, they just went and changed the old myths. Like, and Egypt isn't, wasn't young even then. I mean, Egypt is one of the oldest countries on the planet. So this wasn't like, oh, this is new. We can just change this. No one's gotten used to this yet. No, that was already thousands of years of mythology. They're just like, ah, we'll just change this. A, it happens in the real world. B, it happens in Westeros and in Essos. We've got lots of examples of it. D, I really can't think of anything else. Like, it's really hard to imagine. Like, no, there really was a Merlin King that, that gave them this throne. Like, okay, well, there is that possibility. Sure, we, we can't just say that's impossible. In this world, that's more of a possibility. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We cannot, absolutely can't eliminate that idea. Certainly, Merlings come up 
in plenty of places. There's sightings of them that are they're semi-believable. Yeah. There's even multiple species of them, apparently. Yeah. I don't know why they'd be in the business of giving thrones to humans. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, I mean, when to make friends, you know, <laughs> like that's, that's a good way to make friends. Hey, have a throne. She also says alternately and not necessarily mutually exclusively, the Valarians may have come up with the with their own foundational myth to put themselves on the same level as the elite dragon riding Targaryens. They needed a story to make them sound as cool as all these other families that are old and storied and come fantastic, and fantastical. Yeah, they're right, like they want a fantastic element. Yeah, we're like we're we're associated with the dragon riding family. What what's your cool thing? Well, seahorses. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's our thing. Seahorses. Yeah. No, huge navies, <laughs> huge, fearsome navies. You saw those ships. The Merlin King. Yeah, the Merlin, the Merlin King. King. That's right. Yeah. So that's how they did it. They co-opted that or made that up or, yeah, I'm guessing they borrowed it from local legends. I mean, Driftmark probably wasn't completely empty when the Valyrians got there because it's pretty close to the shore. I mean, it's pretty, you could probably, there's a good chance you could see it from the mainland. So the idea that Westerosi had never gone there is pretty unbelievable. So there's, there must have been locals and whatever happened to them, who knows? We don't even know if this Driftwood Throne still exists now. We don't know if it still exists in A Song of Ice and Fire Times. It may, it may not. I mean, it is made of wood. It's not the best thing to survive the centuries, <laughs> but... Do we, do we know it existed in the time of Dance of the Dragons, for example? Yes. Yes, we do. Well, pretty sure. Yes, almost positive. And it's certainly in the TV show. Like, we see Corley sitting on it, which... Obviously, that doesn't say for sure it's in the books, but I'm pretty sure that, yes, it, it was around that time as well. By looking at what was said about the Targaryens and Dragonstone, too, we can sort of glean additional information about House Valarian, but we have to keep in mind their differences. Here's another quote. Dragonstone had been the westernmost outpost of Valyrian power for two centuries. Its location athwart the gullet gave its lords a stranglehold on Blackwater Bay and enabled both the Targaryens and their close allies, the Valarians of Driftmark, a lesser house of Valyrian descent, to fill their coffers off the passing trade. Valarian ships, along with those of another allied Valyrian house, the Celtigars of Claw Isle, dominated the middle reaches of the Narrow Sea, whilst the Targaryens ruled the skies with their dragons. Yet even so, for the best part of a hundred years after the Doom of Valyria, the rightly named Century of Blood, House Targaryen looked east, not west, and took little interest in the affairs of Westeros. We can't assume House Valyrian looked east as much as House Targaryen and not for the same reasons, though surely they would have been involved in their overlord's plans. Like surely they would have had to go along with whatever orders they were given. If, like when Aegon the Conqueror flew Valyrian to torch that fleet that was invading Lys, did the Valarians, were they involved elsewhere doing military operations or was just Aegon just by himself doing that? It's, it's not said that the Valarians got involved in that and I could see that they, it wouldn't be a huge surprise if they didn't, but it also wouldn't be a surprise if they were deeply involved in that engagement on Aegon's orders. And they may have been, again, they may have been affected by it. Certainly the century of blood wouldn't have been great for people that rely on trade or that thrive because of trade. So they may have been busy doing stuff in the Stepstones. There may have been other naval things happening. They may have been trying to reestablish things that had been lost. A lot of possibilities. Again, being the top beneficiary of Targaryen supremacy comes with a lot of benefits, even before they had the Iron Throne. We've seen a lot of lords of Westeros think of money as something that's beneath them. So like the position of Master of Coin, that's how someone like Littlefinger was able to really abuse that position because 
They're not paying attention to him. A, they don't even know. They're not savvy enough to see what he's doing, even if they were paying attention. So A, they're not paying attention. B, they're not good at sussing out what he's doing anyway. I kind of feel like the Valarians had a similar situation. Not that they were necessarily stealing from the Targaryens, but that they could have because the Targaryens were, they're basically the master of coin for the Targaryens in, in fewer words. Like running all this trade, running all this stuff that's collecting taxes and all that stuff. They're in a position to really, really benefit. It's no wonder they're so powerful. So again, it's like, well, how did they fall so far after that? Collecting taxes might be putting it generously. Yeah. Th- think about that passage Shay just read there. Basically, the Targaryens and Valerians had these two islands at a main port of the continent and collected taxes, quote unquote, of ships coming through. What did they do with that tax money? Did they build roads for Westeros? Did they feed the poor? No. Ship up, They built their own fancy castles and fed their mm-hmm. dragons and amassed wealth. And yep. they were basically what Corliss was worried was happening in a step zone. <laughs> yes, you're right. They, they were, were that. basically pirates, yeah. right? They were <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe not, but they had that, like, may- maybe so. Like, it probably depended on which guy was in charge. G- yeah. There was Gaiman the Glorious, the second lord of Dragonstone after Anar. We have no idea what made this dude so glorious. He's the, the mightiest lord on Dragonstone before the conquest. Like, what did he do to be so glorious? But quite possibly he used his position, <laughs> as you're describing, to enrich House Targaryen and by extension House Valarian would have been their the right hand in, involved in that. After the Doom as well, during the Century of Blood, did they explore the ruins of Valyria? Would they have been one of the houses that went to try to check it out and be like, well, we have the ships. Maybe we should see what's going on here. Should we do some exploring? Should we check it out? If so, they may have been one of the first to go, never mind. <laughs> that is a bad idea. And of course, we're talking about right after it happened. I mean, even now, hundreds of years later, it's, it's terrible. It's hard to go there if, if possible at all. But it probably was worse right after. <laughs> you know, maybe not. Maybe it's just been consistently 11 out of 10 ever since. But I got to feel like it was worse right away. But that's a really fascinating idea, isn't it? Did they try to explore? Did they send some ships there and look around? We've talked about other houses doing that, but I've never thought about House Valarian doing that. And they make so much sense. Like they would have wanted to go check out, like, was our old castle destroyed? You know, is there anything left? Is there any of our old stuff? It's one thing for a house who's never even been there to like, hey, let's find some loot. But we're talking about a house that had property there. They may, especially if they were on the coast or on an island. And maybe not just property, but a lot of knowledge. They wouldn't sure. know where the good ports are, yeah. where the trade, where, where, maybe even where like abandoned treasures would be. I suppose that they might be the reason why everyone else thinks of it as so dangerous and, and unworthy of attempting. Because, I mean, I have no specific reason, but it seems like they would have been highly motivated and able to go back and check it out. Yeah. That's, I agree. And yeah. if, if they did, there's no real record of it, but there is record of everyone being scared of it. So where did that record, why is it everyone feels that way? I, I kind of suppose it came from them. They may have been part of telling that story, yeah. And yeah, multiple failed attempts, you know, multiple stories of ships. hopelessness. Yeah. And yeah, probably spread. And, and everyone else like, well, if they couldn't find anything, if these seafaring masters couldn't go back to their homeland and find anything worthwhile, what do we think we're going to find? That's a good point. It really says a lot. If they can't make any headway, then who who could? That's a great point, yeah. As well, Nina suggests that they may have had more incentive to do something like this because because of the state of trade during the Century of Blood. For one thing, the Century of Blood saw 
the rise of the Dothraki, which would have really been chaotic for the free cities, especially the ones closest to the Dothraki Sea. Their ability to trade would be impacted, if not shut down entirely. So there would be less of their usual to do. Business as usual would not exist. So they would be, well, what are we going to do with our time? Let's, yeah, let's explore Valyria. That might be a time to really have to go far and wide and look for new opportunities because the whole world has changed and say, well, we were just protecting the ships before. Now we're going to, now we need to go and establish ourselves as the traders in our own right, rather than the, the, those who protect it or something like that. That's me leaning more into the idea that they were a navy and, and rather than a shipping fleet when it's entirely possible that they were both or who knows. So we don't know when Castle Driftmark was built. We know the Sea Snake built high tide, the fancy looking one that we, we see on the show with the causeway and all that, that St. Michael's Mount in real life. That was built by him. But we don't know who built Castle Driftmark. That's just a big question mark. It, it, was, it was most certainly built by a lord prior to the conquest. It wasn't, it was probably built. I think his name was well Mark. Before. Yeah. Drift Mark. <laughs> yes. A guy named Mark <laughs> drifted on over there. He was a real drifter. Yeah. <laughs> Here is a quote describing the nearby area. Beneath the dark, salt stained walls of Castle Drift Mark, three modest fishing villages grew together into a thriving town called Hull for the rows of ship holes that could always be seen below the castle. Across the island, near high tide, another village was transformed into Spice Town, its wharves and piers crowded with ships from the free cities and beyond. Alas, Spice Town no longer exists. For a while, it was really big. Given its position out in the bay, it was able to really take over a lot of the local trade in Blackwater Bay because it was slightly closer than Duskendale, King's Landing, and some of these other ports. But it doesn't exist anymore. Hull does still exist. It's still apparently a, a place where ships are built. None other than Alyssa Farman wanted at first to make the Sun Chaser at Driftmark, but she knew she'd get caught if she did it there. So she eventually had to go have it built elsewhere. People like Nettles and Adam and Alan Valarian are were raised or bo- and or born in Hull. So they're, they're ship babies, little shipyard babies, those ones. Grew up around ships. No wonder it was a big part of their life later. Nina says at some point, too, the Valarians may have converted to the Faith of the Seven, possibly even before the Targaryens did so. We know that Aegon did it politically. He converted during slash right after, right before the conquest. He made a show of being crowned by the High Septon to show how much a part of the local faith he was a part of and to show how much a part of the local faith he was a part of i need to be sent to the department of redundancy department Mm -hmm. and he did a lot of that he did a lot of i'm gonna be the same religion you guys are the valarians probably did the same they may not have liked it but they would have followed along their their overlords they would have wanted to fit in they would have maybe if they wanted to still worship the old gods of valyria they could do that in private you know keep that under wraps Maybe they made a bigger stink out of it at the time, but we don't hear anything like that. So our best assumption is that they followed the Targaryens' lead on that. There's a lot of logic in following the religion of the land, especially if you're prominent and doing a lot of business and involved in politics. So it makes a lot of sense that they would have followed that lead. But there's a chance they didn't. There's room for theorizing and ideas that they went their own way for a while. But as Nina says, they may have done it first. They may have, since they got there first, 
And they may have gotten there a long time before. They may have seen the value before Aegon did and said, yeah, let's, let's convert. Let's fit in. It'll help us do business. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons why it makes sense for them to do that, no matter what their deep-seated beliefs are. It might have already been a custom of theirs anyway if they, you know, again, it's a speculation, but if they had outposts all around for the sake of trade and exploration and everything, I can imagine it might be common to just absorb the religion of whatever outposts you're nearby. And I think Nian even pointed out that there might have been some, some practical, some specific practical reasons for it if different areas had like, different tax rates depending mm. on where you were from or good what your point. religion was, you know. That's a good point. Yeah, there's a lot. It's all marketing, right? Like, this is this is marketing stuff. You want to be like the people you're doing business with. You want to... People like to do business with people they recognize. And yeah, it's just it's just common that, that the human condition applies here very much. So let's talk about marriages to House Targaryen. This is a really interesting thing. There have been several marriages to House Targaryen from the Valarians. Did this start in Westeros or did it happen back in Valyria? Big question. I lean and so does Nina towards no, towards the Valarians did not marry House Targaryen in Valyria. For one thing, the Targaryens probably would have wanted to marry other dragon riding houses. There were other dragon riding houses to marry. So the way we see it, the door was open for House Valarian once there were no other dragon rider families around. But with 40 other families, is there really ever going to be a time when they can't find a pairing that's, you know, equal rank, you know? Especially with it's incest also worth on the noting, table. <laughs> yeah. And it's also worth noting that it's not like there are 40 dragon riding families and Valarian. Yeah. There were probably 140 other families outside mm-hmm. the dragon rider families. That, so theoretically, there may have been a marriage at some point, but odds seem strongly stacked against it for a number of reasons. I agree. I totally agree. It does seem that way. I'm, I'm open to other thought processes here, but it sounds like... And, and you're, you're right to say as well that just because the Valarians are this powerful secondary house target, it may not have been that way. Before the Doom, there may, may have been some other bigger house that was a more important vassal to House Targaryen that didn't leave. They were like, no, we're staying. So Valarian jumped up to number two because the other house was incinerated. Also, just I, again, I'm just thinking about like the numbers of it. If there were a hundred other houses, then there's a one percent chance that a Targaryen would have married a Valerian, you know. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to counter myself that the fact that both the Valerian Valerians and Targaryens ended up in the same spot has an indication that they maybe had a connection beforehand. It's possible. Like maybe they, maybe they. That maybe ups the odds in another direction. Well, here's why maybe they started marrying the Valarians when they didn't before. There's a couple of good reasons. One is just sheer numbers, like you said. There aren't dragon rider families around to marry anymore, so who? there's just a smaller pool of candidates out there. Second, the faith really hates the incest marriages. So House Valarian is sort of like a compromise. They're similar blood. They look the same. They have that same heritage, but they're not technically incest marriages. And then you can recycle it. Like Aegon the Conqueror's and Rhaenys and Senya's mom was Valena Valarian, who was half Targaryen. The faith doesn't consider that incestuous. I think we would. (laughs) (laughs) But even the faith doesn't. So to them, it's like a way around that. Like, okay, so we can still have Valyrian blood. They almost sound Valyrian. They even sound Valyrian Valyrian. Well, they really are Valyrian. But they're not dragon riders. They're they're more. They're like it's like a whole bunch of cousins. It's like a recurring cousin marriage they can pull off and never actually have to do the incest marriages. Of course, as we know, they still kept doing incest marriages anyway. But 
Not always. And this was a, a nice available option for them to middle ground it. It was a compromise. It makes the Valarians happy, makes the Faith happy, and it still keeps their their looks. They still look Valyrian. So it also doesn't spoil that whole thing for them that keep them looking different, that exceptionalism aspect. Another new angle to consider when the, the revelation we have from House of the Dragon that this prophecy was known by Aegon and maybe before, right? Yeah. That a reason to marry in the same bloodlines would be for the dragon rider blood, but it might also be for the prophecy blood. Uh, and yeah. if mm. if the Valerians also had a similar vision of the doom, and that's why they also mm. left to Westeros, that maybe Aegon or some other you know, people in the know might have said, hey, let's marry into that family and keep our prophecies going. That makes some sense as well. And, and that fits as well with just the idea of just not having enough of them. Like, well, we need to, we just need more bodies. <laughs> and the, the Valarians being higher ranked than the Celtigars, who were, you know, the other main house we know of that came over. Well, it makes sense that they would choose from them since they're the greater of the two, the more esteemed, the richer, the, the more storied. Nina also agrees. She thinks, yeah, it's probably less likely that the Valarians married into the Targaryens back in Valyria. So it may have been a really big deal when they finally got this. Like, hey, we're actually marrying House Targaryen. We're marrying the Dragon Riders. This may have been like back on Driftmark. It may have been like a milestone achievement for them. You know, it's stepping up into that level that they've been held at arm's length away from for so long. Like, yeah. And no wonder they started to have dragons of their own there with Lainor and Lena and all that. They're like, this is now finally, this is open to us. This isn't something that we didn't have. And it was like, we're being made into a second dragon riding family. Had things gone differently, that may have been the way it had gone. Instead of the, the dragons of Westeros shrinking into nothing, it could have expanded. I mean, that's what Viserys wanted on the TV show. He's talking about, we could have a second age of dragons, more another family that's got dragons. We'll expand on that. It could have gone that way. It could have ended up with a third family. Like the Hightowers could have had dragons. The Lannisters, you saw what's his name was, it's like, I'll build you a dragon pit. We can have dragons. Aha, Lannister dragons, golden Lannister dragons. <laughs> yeah, like the Valarians, all these big powerful houses, would would want that, would lust for a chance to join this exclusive club. And but the Valarians have been the ones standing on the outside looking in for far longer. They've been like, we've been wanting this since before y'all even knew who House Targaryen was. All I can think of is Jack Gleason when he was asked that question about Joffrey with the dragon. He's like, no, that's a bad idea. <laughs> that's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. I don't think anyone else should get dragons. One family is enough. There should not be any more. <laughs> it's so different than Kit Harrington, who said, My dragon would be named Craig. <laughs> <laughs> Craig, <laughs> like yeah, he said I hated riding the dragon. It was so hard, so so painful. <laughs> so I, I think that's a really neat topic. The idea of where the where the Valerians pl- found themselves, how they viewed themselves in this whole business of dragon riding, and whether there was something they thought they deserved, we've been waiting on for so long, or they they know how it works. They know it's like the bloodline is what it takes, you know. They've, see, they've been observers of this for thousands of years. They know. They know what's up. Must have been a pretty big deal for them. And with the incest marriages being an, a, a thing that's a problem in the faith, they would have a real good argument to make. Be like, look, the political situation being as it is, you don't want to do these. Just, you don't want to marry your brother or sister right now. It's just too hot. The idea is just too... I got a cousin who looks just like your sister. <laughs> and why not marry him and <laughs> her instead? Yeah. Those arguments really make themselves. <laughs> 
I could see a contingency on the other side too, in the same way that Viserys sort of thought that we should be powerful and respected as we are, dragons aside. I can imagine some Valarians feeling that way too. Like, we don't need dragons. We have our fleet. Yeah, you know? like, like, like that's not who we are. Sour grapes. Maybe just sour grapes. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> pride or whatever. Every once in a while, Valarian would be like, are you kidding me? Of course we want dragons, y'all. Like, this is just something we tell ourselves. Yeah, ships are great, but man, give me a dragon any day. Valena Valarian, we'll start with her wife of Arian Targaryen, as in the father of Aegon, Visenya, and Rhaenys. So Valena was their mom. And as I said, Valena was half Targaryen. So one of her parents, probably her mother, was a Targaryen too. We don't know who. Maybe Arian's aunt, i.e. Damien's sister. Damien was Arian's father. And it could have been a daughter of Alix or Balon, Damien's brothers. There's a lot of possibilities. The Targaryen family tree has some holes in it from prior to Aegon and his sisters. So we can't really do much besides throw a few guesses out there. But... Clearly, they had married prior because Valena was half Targaryen. So this sometime before this had started. Alyssa Valarian. So I guess my question as oh, well ahead. here yeah. was we have Valena Valarian as the mother of Aegon, Visenya, and Rhaenys. And if, yeah. if the there's a theory that Ori's Baratheon is a bastard of house, you know, a brother of Aegon, would you think that Ori's Baratheon was a bastard of the father or of the mother? I would guess the father usually. But. Usually, yeah, usually it's the father and they have said that. They say yeah. Lord Arian's bastard. So it, it, it doesn't seem to be any thought of it being Valena's child. But that was an interesting, it is a really interesting dichotomy that you have the two most major houses for the first. She was a Celtigar bastard. Yeah. <laughs> for the first like more than a century, the two biggest houses with connection to House Targaryen were Valarian and Baratheon. Those are the ones that had prior bloodline claim to the Targaryen dynasty. They, were, they had a blood relation. So for a long time, it was Baratheon and Valarian that had that proximity. Of course, fast forward to now, it's Baratheon who got the throne for now. <laughs> and Valarian is kind of second fiddle. But for a while, they were the two like most likely to take over if the Targaryens went extinct. You know, the Lannisters were more powerful, maybe, but they didn't have that blood connection, things like that. Is Valerian even second fiddle? Now they're not, but... I don't know how to define now, but, like, when was the last time a Valerian married a Targaryen? And we had Daenerys Valerian. Daenerys, yeah, Daenerys. We have her for later in the episode. But yeah, I think, I guess, so, so you're right, though. Daenerys should be the last one that I can think of. But my, my point is that they're not really, Valerians aren't even second fiddle. They're like, fourth or fifth or now something, they're right? Martell's might be higher. Yeah, or... now they're hardly thought of at all. I mean, they're they're just one of the lords of the Narrow Sea. They're, they're just a me- mediocre Narrow Sea house. But yeah, but their decline was slow. <laughs> like I said at the beginning, yeah, it wasn't yeah. just about the dance and, and some of these other things. But we'll be continuing on that track and showing why they declined. So we'll talk about Daenerys a little bit later. We are able to talk about her without too many spoilers. Alyssa Valarian, wife of... A- it was the wife of Aenys. So the second king was the queen, the second king of Westeros. His wife was Alyssa. And she was a big player. She did a lot. Her life was super interesting. And she was the daughter of Aethon Valarian, who was the second master of ships for Aegon and was a very long-running master of ships because his father was Daemon Valarian and Daemon Valarian died like right away during the conquest really early on. He was a staunch... He was the 
first mastership? Yes. The actual first mastership was Damon. He was only that for a little while. And then, and then Ethan, his eldest son, took over and was for decades. Ethan was, a mari- was married to Alara Massey, another one of the narrow sea houses. The Masseys might have Valyrian origin. It's not entirely clear. They don't have the Valyrian look, but they're... I mean, partial Valyrian origin. They they existed there prior to, but they may have had some intermarrying. That's a topic for another time. But in any case, Alyssa was, that was her, her bloodline. So she's the mother of Reyna, Aegon the Uncrowned, Viserys, not King Viserys, but the Viserys that was squire to Magor, who was murdered by Magor, and Jaehaerys and Alysanne, the Jaehaerys and Alysanne. And then she remarried Rogar Baratheon and had... Boromund and Jocelyn. Boromund is the one we saw on TV that bent the knee, the one that was there when Rhaenyra was looking at suitors and the Blackwell, Blackwood kid killed the Bracken boy. That was him. His son is the one that rejected Lucy. And Jocelyn is the mother of Rhaenys, the queen who never was. So this is when Baratheon and Velaryon kind of formed into one. <laughs> there, They were separate could, sort of cadet Targaryen branches in a sense that kind of came together. So yeah, so as Ashea pointed out, the Baratheons don't descend from Valena, Valarian as far as we know, but they but the bloodlines do mingle down the, down the line. Here's another little quirk. The Targaryens had to have given up slavery at some point. We know they brought their slaves with them. It says Lord Anar packed up his dragons, wives, slaves, wealth, etc., he had to have freed them, or maybe what he did was simply stop taking new slaves. So all the ones he had, just they lived out the rest of their lives, and eventually the, the, the situation aged out of itself. He didn't take new ones, and then they just didn't have any more. The Valarians and Celtigars as well may have had the same transition. They would have probably had to. I mean, the Valarians would have been slavers like everyone else in Valyria, most likely. It seems hard to imagine they weren't. Like, we're the one holdout. We don't do slavery. Yeah, mm. that seems very unlikely. So they, they pr- quite possibly, in fact, probably had slave rowers, like a lot of these navies have now slaves manning the oars. So the Valarians probably had to transition away from that towards paying wages and doing it like above board. <laughs> More naval puns. And... <laughs> That's a good thing that they transitioned away from that, but we don't really have any details on how it happened, but it certainly had to, especially if they're adopting the faith of the seven. You can't, if you're adopting the faith of the seven and having slaves, well, you're doing it wrong. So that would have not flown with the faith and the faith was powerful enough to, you know, have sway and have, have their voice matter in such things. So we we have to contend with the idea it happened. We just don't know much about it specifically. There's a, some recurring names in the Valarian family that are traditional. Jaceres, Luceres, Corlys, those are all names that come up more than once. Damon may have started off as a, Tar- as a Valarian name. We know of a Damon Valarian before we know of a Damon Targaryen. In fact, Damon Targaryen may have been named for the same Damon Valarian, or there were two Damon Valarians that were the first and third master of ships ever. And that third one, who we'll talk about in in a little while, was pretty substantial. He was a really important figure. He was very notable in his time. And he died around the time that Damon was born. So entirely possible Damon, the rogue prince, was named for one or both of these Damon Valarians. In fact... When I was look, noticing this, I was like, that would have been a good thing. That would have a good piece of dialogue for that scene when Coralise was trying to bring Damon on. It's just like, you may have been named for my 
grandfather. It was his grandfather. That was, and his great great grandfather were both Damons. So that would have been a cool little piece of dialogue to add to that scene, like to, to make them seem a little closer to each other, tie them together. It's kind of a minor detail, but they said in a show that Damon was a second son. That was Corliss's attempt to relate to him. Yeah. Are Damon and Corliss both second sons in the books? Corliss is not. Damon still okay. is. Damon's parentage is exactly the same show and book, but Corlys. Oh, Viserys is his brother still. Brother. Yeah, yeah, right? that's yeah, the same. Yeah. yeah, but not Corlys. Corlys was first born in the books, although he was first born and inherited from his grandfather. His grandfather Damon, the same Damon that that lived to near the time when Damon Targaryen was born, outlived his sons. So Corlys inherited as the, but he was the firstborn of the firstborn. So yeah, so that part they changed, which is a good, a good thing to point out, Sean. I'm glad you brought that up because that's not something that we included in our Sea Snake episode since we, <laughs> that was made before the TV show. There is also a name Damien. There's Damon and Damien. There's been a Damien Valarian and there was a Damien Targaryen before any of these. So maybe that's just a very, who knows? I swear to God, if George makes a new character, Aegean... <laughs> <laughs> Aegon <laughs> or Amion, yeah. <laughs> or Arion. Arion. There oh, Arion. <laughs> so there was also a Daron Valerian, and that name's come up a few times. So that's that, that name gets used both by Targaryens and Valerians. There's been a couple of Lanas, not just the Lana we saw on TV. I don't know of any other Lanors, but there probably are other Lanors given there's been multiple Lanas. Valena is similar to Lena, just like. I don't know. Yeah, Daenerys is kind of like Ares with Dan in front of it, although the spelling is a little different. <laughs> and there's also Elena, which is a Targaryen name, maybe a Valerian name. It's just Lena with an E in front. There's also Lyanna and Larissa. This is Lyanna with an I, not a Y. And Larissa comes along later. She got poisoned. She was poisoned by Andrew Farman. Larissa is one her. of those names where I'm like, do I just like have a friend named Larissa he wanted to shout out there? Or uh, somebody hates named Larissa that he wanted yeah, yeah. to murder? Yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> it's a the, little fit as well. Yeah. The Liana was a friend to Reyna, Reyna being the sister wife of Aegon the Uncrowned, firstborn of Alyssa. And she ended up marrying the, the second son of Lord Tarth. There's some... Heritage on Tarth of the Targaryen, of the Valarian. Maybe Brienne has distant Valarian ancestry, but it wasn't the first son of Tarth that married Lyanna, so maybe not. But Brienne is descended from recent Targaryens, maybe a sister of Aegon the Fish. She might have Valarian blood that way anyway, but that's a whole other story. Several other Stormlands houses might have Valarian blood. Estermont does for sure. We know of an Estermont marriage. House Longwaters, that annoying jailer that Jamie talked to, the call that says he descends from John and Jane Waters. They had a Valarian dad. Of course, that's Oakenfist and a Valarian grandma, Queen Daenera, on the other side. So they're very Valarian. They're bastards, but they but they did the thing that we, we talked about at the beginning with Nina's blog, where John Waters married and changed their name to Longwaters to remove the bastard name from their line. Like, well, he his children weren't bastards. He was a bastard, but he married and had children, and so they're not bastards. Go back far enough through John and Jane Waters and Renifer Longwaters, and you f- and you eventually reconnect in that same Damon Valarian that's Corlys's grandfather. So you can go all the way back to a common ancestor right there. So there you go. It's pretty cool. Trace all the way back through them. 
And you pass through Vayman Valarian, the master of complaints along the line there. So his bloodline is still out there too. Good to know. He'd be very happy to see that his descendants are still out there complaining. House Blackfire has plenty of Valarian blood as well, given, of course, that it's basically House Targaryen is House Blackfire and all those pre-marriages of Alyssa Valarian and Valena Valarian, all that, all that applies. Although we don't know of any direct Valarian to Blackfire marriages. That probably never happened. There's also the daughters of Reyna, with Garmin Hightower. So there's some Valarian blood in Old Town that who knows where that ended up. And of course, Egg's sisters, Ray and Daella. We're not entirely sure who they married, but we know they both had children because they're both mentioned. One of them probably married into Tarth, but the other, we don't know. Anyway, there's a lot of Valarian blood out there. It's not super important to trace, but it is fun. We like to look at it. It's probably not relevant to the story, but it's fun to keep track of and, and see who's got that going on. Plenty of it out there. Okay, let's take a few questions and talk about our sponsors for a minute. Guilty Undertaker says, there's a suburb of Ottawa that's called Hull. They sell t-shirts to tourists that say, I've been to Hull and back. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, nice one. Nice, nice indeed. We like a good pun over here at History of Westeros. We're big fans of puns, as you well know. You, You surely know that by now. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Smile Brilliant. Stop that expensive guess and test method when it comes to teeth whitening and oral care. Stop worrying about all the different options and settle on one that is proven, one that has dentists behind the scenes and not marketers. Don't bother with LED lights. Don't use gum strips. Don't use charcoal, especially don't use charcoal. That is the worst option. That's just my opinion. It just sounds so terrible. Anything that wears down the enamel. I mean, talk about sacrificing your health for looking good. You really don't have to do that. You can look good without sacrificing anything other than a little bit of money. You know, these things aren't free, but they're not expensive either for something that is something that people put so much effort into. The number one product recommended by Dennis is this custom fitted tray. In the past, it's only dispensed by dentists, but that's changing now. This, over the last decade or so, Smile Brilliant has been doing it direct from their lab using their innovations. So go to smilebrilliant.com and get custom-fitted teeth whitening trays or night guards if you grind your teeth. They have a whole other suite of products like uh, electric tooth, water flossing, probiotics, things like that, breath fresheners, all sorts of good stuff, all backed by their guarantee. I still haven't gotten my impressions yet. I'm really excited. They they told me that they've gotten them and they're sending them back soon, but it is the holidays, so the mail's a little slow. So maybe next week I'll be able to actually show off the first part of my journey. We'll be going over it the next few months, so we'll be able to follow along and see how it goes. We can maybe do some before and after. That's fun. Westeros or Westeros5 is the code you'll want to use at smilebrilliant.com. If they already have a site-wide sale, Westeros5 will add to it. If they don't, Westeros will give you 20% off. We have the before picture of you biting the painted table. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> that was less brilliant, but I was smiling. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is also brought to you by our friends at NordVPN. With well over 5,000 servers in 65 countries that all you have to do is click on the country to switch where you're connecting through. Super easy, super visual, super simple. You're 
certain to find a good spot almost right away each time. It's really easy with so many options. That's how VPNs work. They have other servers for you to connect to. And the way they stay anonymous is by having so many servers that they constantly switch out. So an important number is to know how many do they have operating at any one time. And I'm pretty sure if my research was accurate, NordVPN has the most. 5,000 is the most of any VPN service. So that is a nice leg up in their corner. Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal. Go to nordvpn.com slash thrones to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan and four additional months for free. You can get basically a year-long subscription for the price of a cup of coffee a month, roughly, and you get a 30-day money-back guarantee. So I've been saying for weeks now all the different benefits. Some of them will apply to you. Some of them might not. There's really no way to be sure other than trying it out. And that's where the money-back guarantee comes in. If, it happen- if you happen to be one of those people that the VPN actually isn't worth it, well, then you just get your money back. Simple as that. And if it does work out for you, then you've just paid very little for something that makes your internet browsing a lot safer, more effective, a lot more fun. Whatever it is, it actually helps improve on your end. Maybe all of the above. Well, low risk, a lot of potential for reward. Once again, nordvpn.com slash thrones. All right, let's get back to it. The title Master of Ships for much of the rest of this episode will be looking at things through the lens of that title because the Valarians held it for so long, even after they declined in power at the beginning of Robert's Rebellion. Ares' master of ships is Luce Ares Valarian. So even in decline, they still have that naval expertise. They still have that position. They still have that uh, tradition going for them. Even without as much wealth, even without as much power, they still have that. So let's talk about this up till that time. A bit of trivia. The idea of how important the master ships would be that the United States, they shuffled around a little bit over time. They, they changed a few times. But we basically, we had a secretary of the army and a secretary of the navy as cabinet level positions. Mm. The, the secretary of state, secretary of treasury, secretary of the army, secretary of the navy were the president's cabinet for 100 years. Separate entities, oh, Navy wow. and Army. It wasn't until after World War II that got consolidated into Department of Defense. Oh, wow. And it, it kind of makes sense. I mean, ships are really, really, really expensive. You need a massive budget to upkeep them and to pay for all the, the wages of the people on there. There's so many things that go into it, so many moving parts, so many pieces and factories involved in all the different and uh, parts of the ship. They're unique in a lot of ways, too, both like they get used for a lot of things outside the military, right? Transportation, and et cetera, That's true. Uh, exploration. Which has been a struggle and, for us to figure out which Valarian, which they do more of it or both, right? Yeah, right? yeah. And it's also unique that they're more independent. Once the ship sails off with some orders can't take it back. You know what I mean? Like, that's it. They're going to do whatever they're going to do with whatever they have on hand. Prior to radio technology and all that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which, of course, Westeros is, that's all they have. (laughs) Ravens can be sent from ships, but not to a ship, you know. So let's, let's have this quote. Having taken a dozen castles and secured the mouth of the Blackwater Rush on both sides of the river, he commanded the lords he had defeated to attend him. There they laid their swords at his feet, and Aegon raised them up and confirmed them in their lands and titles. To his oldest supporters, he gave new honors. 
Damon Valarian, Lord of the Tides, was made Master of Ships, in command of the Royal Fleet. Tristan Massey, Lord of Stonedance, was named Master of Laws, Crispian Celtigar, Master of Coin, and Oris Baratheon he proclaimed to be, quote, my shield, my stalwart, my strong right hand. You laughed at Crispian, didn't you? Yeah, just because I thought of Crispin Cole. <laughs> Crispin Cole, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Sir Crispin. Sir Crispin, yeah. Less of an insult when, it, well, he was a master coin, so maybe it was. <laughs> it's possible House Celtigar occasionally held the Lord Admiral title. Maybe they snuck in their master ship sometime, but we don't actually have that on record. Just kind of seems like it would have happened at some point, maybe, but maybe not. So, yeah, so that was Aegon the Conqueror, of course, dealing out the initial, like, the first small council, basically. That's what we were just hearing here. Another little, like, slightly off topic, but interesting bit of trivia. Didn't Cersei change all the titles, right? Yes, she, she did. She changed it in Center Master Ships, Grand Admiral, Center Master Coins, Head Treasurer, or something like yep, that, right? She's, that's like, right. really trying to assert her dominance or influence or whatever. And Make it hers. Her yeah, she, those are yeah. more like, so those, those titles that she used are more like the ones you see in Essos, which ironically, would be what Aegon and, and Damon Valerian, these guys would have come, that's the tradition they would have come from originally, but of course, they didn't live in Valyria either. What's uh, interesting to note here, I would guess this Tristan Massey, Lord of Stonedance, who's Master of Laws, I'm guessing it's his daughter, Alara, that married Damon Valarian or married Athan Valarian, Damon's son. And from Athan and Alara came Alyssa. Alyssa, of course, married Aenys, so she was the second queen of Westeros. Or third, I guess third queen. Because <laughs> Aegon had two queens, yes. So <laughs> second king, third queen. Daemon Valarian. Okay, so this is the first Daemon Valarian. Let's briefly mention him. He's the one who died almost right away. He got this title from Aegon, and then the conquest began, and he took his fleet to try to conquer the Vale, and lost. Like, he actually lost. And then Visenya came in and was like, well, you're not, I'm not going to lose. And she torched the fleet with, with Vagar and then just sat on the airy. And they're like, okay, yeah, you win. You win. You, you flew up past all our defenses. You've got the little boy lord sitting in your lap. Yeah, you win. You win. You win. Okay. So Damon had Corlise, and Corlise was the first lord commander of the Kingsguard. This was a younger brother to Aethon. When Damon dies, Aethon becomes master of ships. So you have these two brothers who are the first lord commander of the Kingsguard and the second master of ships. Talk about the Valarians being just in there, right? You got two of the most important jobs right away. And of course, the Kingsguard wasn't formed right away. So I think Damon probably didn't live to see his son. Actually, he definitely didn't live to see his son become the first Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. He never even heard of the Kingsguard. It wasn't even a thing. So unfortunately, Damon didn't see his son get to do that. But I'm sure the family was proud of, of Corlise for being the first Lord Commander. It also might have not been an established named Kingsguard and Lord Commander, but I bet the king had bodyguards. Yeah, you're right. Someone was in charge of it. And he, he, the pride, the father still might have gotten the pride without the titles that we know now. We know Visenya was, a, was strict about choosing loyal people. She was like, no, because Aegon wanted to have a tournament. It's like, well, let's just pick the best warriors. And Visenya's like, no, you need loyal people, not great warriors. Like, they should be good warriors, but loyalty number one. So... First Lord Commander being from House Valarian, that just lines up super well with, with that idea that she's picking someone loyal. It's like, okay, we got a, a younger son of the house that's been our right hand for centuries. 
uh, everything fits about that decision there. And she may have even known him personally. She may have even known Corley's well. Like he would have been around the Red Keep. He would have been, you know, at court or his fa- his father being the master of ships. He may have been on one of the ships. He may have been, a, he, he like all Valarians, he, he had naval experience. So maybe he was a captain of a ship in the same battle that his father died in. And there were other brothers too who were unnamed. There's Ethan and Corlys and some others. So they would have been doing these other things as well that I'm talking about, being bodyguards or sailing ships in the Royal Fleet. Probably that. They're more likely to be naval-oriented than bodyguard-oriented. But as we see, they could. there's room for both. I always have a little bit of a, I don't know, like maybe a cynical thought in my mind that Maybe he was ambitious and they didn't want him to inherit. <laughs> like, Maybe, yeah. He was he was the lesser of they're like, well, he won't murder all his brothers if he's <laughs> not allowed to yeah. inherit anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Ethan married Alara Massey. Well, we don't know when that happened, but Alyssa married Anis in the year 22. So well before Anis became king, he, 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 that was another 15 years away or 14 years away. Alyssa was 15 herself then. Let's talk briefly about the royal fleet and what its job is, because over time it's going to change. So we need to set the expectation so we can describe what it morphs into over time. Piracy is one of the main things they deal with. Piracy that affects any shipping around Westeros in the narrow sea. Like if it's on the other coast, which is out west, that's going to be the job of the high towers or the Greyjoys or whatever. You're on your own, suckers. Yeah, you guys are on your own. Yeah, you're not, you can't <laughs> expect the Valarians to sail their ships all the way over there when you've got your own ships over there. For example, Ethan Valarian, second master of ships, took Osmond Strong and Magor the Cruel before he was Magor the Cruel. He was Prince Magor at this point to go fight Sargasso San, ancestor of Salador San, in the Stepstones in the year 29, and then again in the year 30. So back-to-back years of campaigns of Ethan Valarian leading anti-piracy campaigns into the Stepstones. Any business to do with shipping in the free cities especially if it might turn to violence, would be his business. You know, of course, the king would, would tell him what to do or give him guidance, but that's, that's his job to handle any of that. So it really started off with they needed someone they could trust, and the Valarians is someone they could trust. Over time, though, that became a problem. You can't have one house basically being the royal fleet, right? <laughs> that's, that causes issues. Like, well, what if they aren't with you anymore, then you just lost your entire royal fleet. Well, that's kind of what happens during the Dance of the Dragons. Like, the royal fleet can't take both sides when the the kingdom splits in half. That's an issue that comes up later. But at the time, they were cool with, yeah, the Valarians, we can trust them. The Valarian fleet, the royal fleet was basically the same thing. Lots of room for corruption here, though. Sean, think about how much room for corruption there is here. They're the tax collectors. They decide their own budgets. Like, we need this much to fix our ships. So they collect the money. They spend the money. They they outfit the ships. They decide how much everyone is paid. They decide who the officers are (laughs) of each ship. They appoint the captains. They appoint... Yeah, that is a lot of power. And uh, again, think about... I I was going to say that this is maybe a little more cynical, but... I bet the reality of what the, the royal fleet did on a day-to-day basis was collect taxes. Yeah, they, their, their real job was to stop every ship that came into Blackwater Bay, see what they had, and take some of it. Yep. And, <laughs> Customs. And yep. Yeah, exactly. And, and when they took it, probably they gave some amount of it to the crown and kept some amount of it. And that, that what those amounts were were probably hard to track or prove. You know what I mean? And yep. so they kind of got to do what they want. And you might have different levels of trustworthiness or honesty among the captains or the people recording the inventories for the captains. 
Yeah, and bribes they, or passing hands like you didn't see this cargo. Yeah. And unless you have a very vigilant and competent master coin and or king or whatever, the Valerians could just get away with a lot. With, even if they weren't actively trying to be corrupt or manipulative or whatever, they still might accidentally be taxing the realm too harsh, to go, disrupting the economy, upsetting morale. Ships stop coming to Blackwater and go somewhere else because those darn Valerian, you know, yeah. all these things. It was hard to even be aware that they were happening. Yeah. Depending on who the Lord was. Yeah. Like this would change based on the personality <laughs> of that particular Lord of Driftmark, that particular Lord of the Tides, that particular master of ships, that particular Lord Admiral. Boy, they have a lot of titles, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> don't let Danny marry one of them. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you just can't. You can't get through it all. Yeah. <laughs> 14 years after marrying Alyssa, like I said, Anis becomes king. She becomes queen. Though he's not a martial guy. He was not a warrior type. He was into astronomy, which maybe that was something that is a something in common with people who are big on sailing. Obviously, those two things relate quite a bit, more so in ancient times or in pre-technological times than, than now. But even now, that's something maybe that they connected over. And, and the reason I'm thinking about this is the king's father-in-law is his master of ships, Athens, his father-in-law. So that's, uh, they were, they would have been close. I mean, at least could have been close. They certainly were close in family, both as cousins and in-laws at the same time. They're both blood relatives and in-laws. So these incest marriages, they always, it's all weird to keep track of everything. Never, never ceases to be weird. Since he took over for his father during the conquest, Athen could have been master ships for like 30 plus years. I mean, this is, his father died when he was like the year two or three, and he was still master ships past the year 36 for Anis. At some point during Anis's life, Athan passes because under Magor, it's Damon Valarian, the, sa- the second Damon Valarian, the one who we mentioned earlier. Interestingly, Alyssa sang a dirge for Anis, her husband, at his funeral. Maybe she also did for her father, Athan, when he died. We don't hear about that. We don't hear about his funeral, but makes sense. And that reminds me of Sir Vaymond, who did the, the oration very nicely. I liked that oration, even though it was rude. I just thought it was cool. Some of the word choices, when he wasn't being rude about it, the, it was very poetic. <laughs> and so it kind of made me think of that. And not the first thing about Alyssa that aligns with some of the events of House of the Dragon. Not the first time we've mentioned that some of the things in House of the Dragon, especially Viserys and Emma, seem to have been borrowed or inspired by Alyssa's life. Under Magor, like I said, second Damon Valarian, he's very proud of his family. But we hear that he was a proud man. He may not have had a lot to do, though, because Magor was very focused on land-based matters, i.e. fighting the faith. And the Valarians wouldn't have been overly involved in that that we know of, other than maybe giving advice here and there. But you're not, you're not sending your ships to the center of the continent to fight infantry battles, you know, with the, with the poor fellows and the warrior sons. They were doing their thing off at sea while Magor was busy inland. Now, remember, Magor's first wife was Cerise Hightower. So you have your first Hightower Valarian sort of squabble for supremacy going on here, whereas Alyssa and Aenys and that side were very Valarian, and Magor's over here married to the Hightowers. Now, of course, he never had any kids with her or anyone. So that didn't develop, but it was still a preview of the Hightower Valarian squabbles that we see during House of the Dragon. Alyssa escapes when Visenya dies, during the, the chaos of Visenya's death, who was 
pretty much the main reason Magor was able to get away with so many of the things he did was because Visenya had his back and was was operating from, I want to say behind the scenes, but not really behind the scenes. She was pretty much on the scene, <laughs> in front of the scene, on top of the scene. So when she died, Alyssa took advantage of the opportunity to escape and stole Dark Sister and some of her children. And she now she had been usurped, of course, by Visenya initially uh, and Megor. And initially she they she ran away and Visenya brought them back and they bent the knee and had to cooperate. And at one point it was thought that she had fled to Volantis or Tyrosh, which maybe implies that the Valarians have connections there. Like, why did they get the idea that they fled there? Maybe it was just a rumor, but you'd think they would flee to a place where they had friends or connections. And you could see why the Valarians would especially have connections to Volantis, but also to Tyrosh. Tyrosh was a military outpost of the Valyrians. It has all this Blackfire history going. Volantis is the closest to Valyria, both in proximity and in bloodlines. And the Valarians would have some of that same connection. So they would probably be families that know each other from back in the day, maybe even existing intermarriages, connections prior to the doom that some of the Volantine old blood would have had with the Valarians. So that's kind of neat. That fits pretty well. Jumping forward back again to when Alyssa escapes, she takes Dark Sister, Jaehaerys, and Alysanne. They escape together. She's unable to take her son, Viserys, who Magor turns around and murders. Meanwhile, Damon Valarian shows evidence, despite his pride, despite his high position, he shows that he's maybe trying to get these two branches to reform and become one again. He, it's his idea for Magor to marry Reyna. That's his niece who he had usurped by killing her sister, her brother, who, well, he didn't kill her at first, or he didn't kill him at first. He just took the throne, and then eventually Aegon's like, hey, that was my throne, and then they fought, and, well, Magor had Balerion, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's that. So Reyna still survived all that, and Magor was going to marry her, along with all these other brides. He took six total wives. We think what Damon was trying to do was connect the two branches together, even though it was a mean thing to suggest to Reyna to marry her uncle who killed her own brother husband. For the realm, it may have been a really good thing. And he wasn't some Magor loyalist. We know that because he was the first major lord other than Rogar Baratheon to declare for Jaehaerys. And now, it couldn't have been before Rogar because Jaehaerys declared at Storm's End at Rogar's castle. So Rogar was backing him when the announcement was made. But the first great lord to follow was Damon Valarian. He abandoned Magor, and that really started the domino effect. It was like a, the, the snowball, the downhill rolling snowball. Like once Damon joined, all these other great lords abandoned Magor as well. And then it was basically not even a conflict. Once everyone, once the ball started rolling, everyone abandons Magor, declaring for Jaehaerys, boom, done. And Alyssa, of course, reappears at Storm's End too during this announcement. So she's there for all that. With her children. That's a similar snowball that might have occurred if Corliss didn't join the Blacks. Ooh, right? yes. Very if he had joined the Greens instead, there might have just not even been an answer Dragons. It would have been too much of a power imbalance yeah. between them to have a real conflict. Yeah, the, the Black supporters would have realized, you know, I left my oven on at home. I got <laughs> 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 just, uh, I, I'm caught at home here. I can't, I can't make it back just yet. Now, remember, Jaehaerys didn't come to the throne as an adult. He at first was a minor. So there was a regency period and Alyssa Valarian was the queen regent. 
like a Cersei, but way more competent, way less cruel, not renaming everything just because she wanted to. And this Damon Valarian was all was allowed to continue. He was said, okay, you did a good job. And here's what Jaehaerys said to all those people. Here's a quote. Jaehaerys reached out to the Lord of Claw Isle, Edwell Keltigar, who had been Hand of the King under Magor, and recalled him to King's Landing to serve as Lord Treasurer and Master of Coin. For Lord Admiral and Master of Ships, the young king turned to his uncle Daemon Valarian, Lord of the Tides, Queen Alyssa's brother, and one of the first great lords to abandon Magor the Cruel. And then Alyssa remarries. She remarries Rogar. This is very soon after the Magor is usurped or is overthrown. Damon, of course, attends this wedding and he agrees with her and with Rogar that Jaehaerys and Alysanne shouldn't get married. He's like, yeah, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't, we shouldn't allow this. They were all against Jaehaerys and Alysanne marrying because of the incest thing and because it would upset the faith. Damon suggests Eleanor, kind of how he suggests Reyna to Magor. He suggests Eleanor, who was another of the Black Brides, she's a Costane, to again unite these two sides. Rogar thinks that's a fine suggestion, but he also tries to marry Alysanne to his own brother, Orin Baratheon, which would have really brought the Baratheons even closer to the throne, which would have maybe caused them to jump ahead of the Valarians in esteem as the second most powerful house. Somehow the news leaks. Somehow Alysanne and Jaehaerys find out about these plans and they run off and elope. And Rogar blames Damon. He says, Damon Valarian did it because he saw the Baratheons gaining more power and didn't want and wanted to prevent this marriage. So they said so Rogar blames Baratheon Valarian squabbling for second position for this leak. So that's pretty interesting. And Rogar, as we may recall, as we'll discuss another time, as we have discussed in the past, Rogar just wouldn't stop. He kept going. He tried to undermine the marriage. He did all these things that he shouldn't do. He went way too far. Alyssa was like, you're fired. <laughs> He's like, you can't fire me, woman. And Damon Valarian and Corwin Corbray are like, yeah, she can. <laughs> She's the <laughs> regent. She gets to decide who is hand. She basically speaks for the king until he comes of age. And Rogar still tried to make moves after that. Got a pardon eventually. But Damon Valarian was promoted to hand of the king after Rogar was fired. It really backfired on him. Not only did he was he like, oh, these Valarians are trying to get one up on us, but the Valarian got his job hand to the king when he vacated it. So that, that's not at all what he had in mind. Got two up on him. Got two up on him. Both hands, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but promoting him to ham meant he was no longer master of ships. So we had our first non-Valarian master of ships, which was Manfred Redwine. Now, the Redwines are, to this day, still one of the most powerful ship holders of Westeros. They're extremely powerful. Their fleet is poised to do battle with Euron's fleet. Give you a guess who's going to come out ahead on that one. <laughs> <laughs> This is all the year 50, right? The year 50 AC is when Damon's promoted to Hand of the King. The Golden Wedding was the year 49. In the year 54 is when Lyanna was poisoned by Andrew Farman. That's all the Reyna business there. And Alyssa dies in childbirth, giving birth to Jocelyn. Jocelyn being the mother of Rhaenys, the queen who never was. Remember how I said a lot of this story is kind of like Viserys and Emma in reverse? Well, Alyssa had that same thing happen where the maester's like, well, she's going to die, but we can maybe save the child. 
And there's multiple reports on whether she consented to it or not, or whether it was just something that, that she was passed out and never woke up for. But jo- but this this has a happier, a slightly happier ending because yes, Alyssa still died, but Jocelyn survived. The, the baby didn't die also. So that was good. That really affected Damon. Kind of like how Viserys was never the same after the death of Emma, even though Alyssa is his sister, not his wife or his daughter or anything. The loss of his sister and Yana, his niece there, was too much for him. Those were really close together. And he's like, I'm done. He retired his hand to the king. There's rumor that he was been fighting with Manfred Redwine over this master ships business, but that's just a rumor. There's nothing backing that up. It's just the court gossip apparently at the time that was included in Fire and Blood. So he lives to be 88 years old, though. He lives a long time. So he was well short of retirement. He retired, like I said, in the year 54. We don't know when he was born, so we don't know what year it was when he died, but it was in the late 70s or early 80s. So he, or actually could be the late 80s. So he lived for maybe 30 more years in retirement, which is kind of unusual. And that's really important because... Here we have a grandfather, Lord of the Tides, who's actually present, doesn't have his job that they normally have. He's not at court all the time. And this is the time that Cor- the Corlys Velaryon is, is around. So unusually, he, he may have had a hyper-present Lord grandfather, whereas a lot of these, like typical is the Lord Father is busy doing stuff. He's not really, a lot of times they're not that present in their sons and even especially not daughters' lives. This may have been very different. We may have had a, a very close relationship between Corlys and this particular Damon Valerian. But remember, though, there was some pain in between that. The In the year 59, only five years after he retired, mad suffering. The shivers hits. The shivers was really bad. It killed one of his two, three sons. He outlived all three of his sons. One of them died of the shivers. And he had four daughters. Three of them died to the shivers. So that's real nasty. And somewhere along the way, you, you guys remember the story of Lucamore Strong, Lucamore the Lusty? Remember after it was discovered what happened to him, the children were seen as blameless. The wives were, were guilty because they knew they were sleeping with the king's guard, but the children were considered blameless and they were sent to different places. The, second, the, the, wife of, the, the children of the second wife were sent to live in Driftmark under Damon Valari. Captains, crew we, members, who knows what they ended do up we doing. Do we know who that second wife was? No, no. There, she was a common-born woman. She wasn't a noble, and, and her name is not given. So Corlys was born in 53, so he was born the year before Damon resigned. And one year before the double tragedy of Lyanna's and Alyssa's deaths. So he inherits, like I said, in the late 70s, early 80s. He marries Rhaenys in 90 AC. Interestingly, he almost was married to Daella. Daella Targaryen, who ended Paella. up... Daella. Daella. Yes, who we yeah, call like, Daella. Like Paella. Who, who, and she married Roderick Aaron instead, and their child was Emma Aaron, right? <laughs> so that would have been a little different if Daella had married Corlys, but didn't happen. She got seasick on the way to meet him. <laughs> so she's like, nope, <laughs> nothing to do with ships. I'm not marrying that. This is a note from Nina. Fire and Blood did not focus on the betrothal of Rhaenys and Corlys at all, but I'm curious as to the reasoning behind it. If Aemon thought that Rhaenys would one day have to assert her right to the throne or that of her future son, then he might have considered Corlys a good partner for her to have. Now, if you can't follow along what that meant, Aemon was heir to the throne. Aemon was the eldest son of Jaehaerys and Alysanne. His firstborn was 
Rhaenys, the queen who got passed over. So what she's suggesting is that Aemon thought ahead and was like, hmm, my daughter might get passed over if I give her a really powerful husband, the Lord of the Tides. That's less likely to happen. It was less likely to happen. It still happened, but it was less likely to happen. Like he, as we see, like she would have been passed over probably in other circumstances. But the fact that she was married to Corlys and other circumstances happened, that it wasn't so easy to just pass her over. She might not have even been considered. Exactly. For that moment, yes, yeah. exactly. Counter to that though, especially insight we got at the, the GotCon in LA, was it a betrothal or were they just in love? Maybe they just got married because they were in love. Do we know that they were betrothed? We, they were betrothed. It's one of those ones that just okay. worked out. You know, like you give, okay. you get enough arranged marriages and some of them are going to work out great. You know, some of them you just, you get lucky and wow, like, we yeah, actually are like soulmates. A, a, bit, a bit of a larger age gap when it comes to the books than they yeah. do in the show as well. So it's, it's less of a clear, like looking like love match like it does in the show. Cause there is, it's like a pretty, a pretty hefty age difference between them actually. When you yeah. like look at it, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, the show, just, this has e- always been happening. The show evened out some of those age gaps, yeah. not just Alicent and, and Rhaenyra, some of the other ones too. But it is an ex- explicit that they were as close in the books, but it, it is implied pretty heavily. There's some things that happen later that in the books that would be spoiler to talk about that show that looks like their relationship in the books was close as well. But as a history book, it doesn't have the, the descriptions of intimacy or the, the heart to hearts and things like that. We don't know. Yeah. Look at that that view <laughs> into their lives. Yeah, he was about 20 years older than Rainey's. Okay, yeah. Uh, Pretty big uh, age. Guy. 21 yeah. years older. Married her at 16. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's another quote that takes us into the era of Viserys and the dance. Prince Balon was firmly ensconced as heir apparent by then. Yet House Valarian and House Baratheon clung to the belief that young Laenor had a better claim to the Iron Throne, and some few even argued for the rights of his elder sister, Lena, and their mother, Rhaenys. Right. In the book, it was even closer that she just got passed over. Like, Rhaenys kind of was just passed over, even with Corlys. But they had a much harder time passing over Laenor because, yes, the patriarchy won out in pushing the woman aside, but her son was harder to push aside for the same the same reasons that make them focus on men made Lenore harder to skip over, even though it's the same bloodline that they're dealing with. So this is where we get to Viserys in the dance era. There's less to say here. We covered that very well in both of our, in our Dance of the Dragon scripted coverage and our Sea Snake episode. So we'll skip ahead to after the dance. And the era of Oakenfist, which we also have the episode on, like I said. But this is where their fortunes drop. A little overlap needs to be discussed here. Not only did their fortunes drop because of the war, the war ravaged all of Westeros. Was set. No one really came out ahead after the war. Just everyone lost stuff. Castles, people, dragons, ships, you know, all that stuff. But also... Oakenfist unwisely invested a lot of the Valarian fortune in the Rogare Bank, which defaulted. We described some of that during the Lysine episode, but also planned to cover it separately someday. They got hammered by that on top of their losses during the war, and they lost their cushy job. One of the new policies that emerged after the dance was yeah, maybe we shouldn't have the royal fleet just largely controlled by one house. So the crown started to build ships at its own expense, outfit ships and control them at its own expense directly rather than relying on 
this house to do that for them. So they have direct control going forward. And that's really important. Even though you still see the occasional Valarian master ships, it's no longer their own ships that they're in charge of. Well, there'd be a few, right? They'd still have a contingent, a detachment of ships rather than the entire royal fleet of, say, 100 ships being 80 of them being Valarian. It's more like 10, maybe even five, maybe 15. Small percentage, notable, but, but not like overwhelming. A flip-flop percentage. Yeah, the opposite. You're totally right. So that's a big deal. You know, I don't really know anything about this Regari Bank story. Is there is there much to know? Is this something Oakenfish should have seen coming? Is it totally random? Is it... It kind of remains to be seen. I don't know. We're not really sure how much of it we'll see in House of the Dragon, right? So yeah. I feel like you should be careful with what you say here, okay. personally. Yeah, I, I don't know how much of it will be in House of the Dragon, but basically, I, I don't think he should have seen it coming, but maybe... Like, it, modern people would have seen it coming. Like, the, the stuff that they did raises all sorts of red flags for where's that money? Are you really, re- you know, like, the, like bankers that just like, have lots of fancy stuff, you know, like they're spending all this money. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm. so it really depends on where you're sitting. But reading about it in the, after the fact, it's like, these, there were some red flags here. But the lesson dependence on the crown. So their, their, their grift was gone. They're no longer in charge of the taxing and the budgeting and all this stuff. So I think that was huge. But also the loss of dragons. They're attached at the hip to the most powerful house the thing that made that most powerful house the most powerful house is no longer present. So yes, the Targaryens held the throne another 150-some years after the dance, but it was they were never as dominant as before. They never had that, oh, we don't want to mess with them. No, they're just another house. They're, they look, they have purple eyes and silver hair, but that's it. There's no longer this closeness to gods thing. Like, yeah, maybe they're a little disease resistant, but that doesn't make them kings, right? Like, that's not enough to make them kings. So the Valarians suffered by extension through the fall of the Targaryens' supremacy, their greatness, their god-like aspect brought down the Valarians with them. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah, if they wanted to ask if they wanted to ask Targaryens for help in the past, Targaryens would be like, sure, and send two dragon riders. Yeah. Now if they want to ask Targaryens for help, Targaryens like, if we got to like raise an army and get too much. No, nah, can't help <laughs> it. Sorry. After the war, there, the same basic thing that Vaemon Valarian complained about kind of comes up again. His son, Daron, confusingly. <laughs> so yes, Vaemon's son, Daron, who may or may not exist in the show, we have no idea, goes after... Oakenfist is like, I should be lord of the tides. They settle their differences. It doesn't come to blood. And along with his, Damien, D- Darren has a younger brother named Damien. Yeah, another Damien. And he, they're together on this. And so they all make it work. They're like, okay, they come to an accord. They make a, reach a compromise. They both get ships and some land. Oakenfist stays lord. Daron marries Hazel Hart. Probably daughter of the Lord Hart that was executed by the Greens for refusing to bend the knee. In that scene where, in the, in the TV show, where those lords were led away for refusing to bend the knee to Otto, it's implied that some of them are executed either then or later. In the book version of that event, the Harts were one of those families, and they were, the, Hart, the Lord Hart was executed. And you, so... You know what else? What? Was, she was the star of the hit show, Heart to Heart. <laughs> <laughs> Nina has an idea related to that. I really liked this. Yeah, Nina said she wonders whether Daron Valarian named his ship the True Heart as a pun on the name of his wife, Hazel Hart. And I very much think he did. Yeah. Now, Hart is H-A-R-T-E and True Heart is 
like the beating heart, but yeah. still, but yeah, yeah, it still works. The yeah, pun I, still works. Yeah, I, I think so. There's no reason. There's no, there's no world in which George R. R. Martin is going to come to me and be like, that head cannon is wrong. <laughs> so there's no reason for us to not believe that. That's <laughs> I like the way you think, Ashea. I really do. <laughs> Oakenfist, you know, leads his men into the daughter's war versus Bravos. This is actually where he gets the name Oakenfist. He, he technically didn't have the name until this battle. Daron dies. The true heart is sank. And that's, that's too bad. Then Oakenfist is tasked with fighting the Red Kraken. And he gets, he stops at the high tower to wait for reinforcements. The, there's the Lord Redwine and Lord Hightower are going to send some ships to help him. And he's just having a great time at Old Town reading ancient naval books and reading, you know, getting along. So it sounds like the Hightowers and the Valarians at this, in this era, not that long after the dance, are doing pretty well. And at least they're getting along. And it works out pretty well as well because he doesn't end up having to fight the Red Kraken. He just gets to go back home. And then he goes off and lives the rest of his life involving... Well, we'll work our way through that. In the meantime, Aegon III, years later, gets married to Daenera, who is the granddaughter of Vaemond Valarian. So the Vaemond Valarian's blood is the queen. The queen of Westeros. How cool is that? He complains, he complains, he complains. If he only didn't complain so much, he might have lived to see this. <laughs> his own granddaughter becoming queen. That's that's up there with his brother, you know, marrying into the crown and all that. Like, he's like, yeah, we got there, y'all. We did it. But he wasn't around to see it. And young Lena, of course, there's a new Lena, Valarian at this time. She has a dragon egg hatch, and it hatches a monster. And it takes a bite out of her arm, and, and Oakenfist kills it because it's horrible. And yikes. I didn't really need to include that. It's just cool. Because <laughs> it's like, what the hell? Like a monster beyond a dragon? Like dragons are already monsters. So. Well, yeah, this one was more like it didn't behave like a dragon baby normally does. Like usually they don't attack the person. Apparently that had never happened before. Yeah. yeah, usually they don't immediately bite the hand that the arm that hatches them, <laughs> the hand that feeds them. I don't know. Now we have Daron the first. We get to Daron the first. The first King Daron Targaryen, who may have been named for Daron Valarian or a Daron Valarian, considering there's been a lot of them. We describe a bit of this. We describe Oakenfist and Daron's career in our episode on Daron. The war against Dorne, his conquest of Dorne, was, according to Stannis, all about Oakenfist. It was like, if without Oakenfist, this conquest doesn't happen. Of course, the conquest wasn't held anyway. They couldn't keep Dorne, but naval action was crucial to the victory, not just because Oakenfist was a great commander, but because you need naval superiority to conquer Dorne. That was kind of proven, at least according to Stannis, and perhaps by the results, the results may prove that. There's a lot more you can get on Oakenfist from us by listening to some of our older episodes. Let us now move forward. But after him... There really haven't been any lords of note. There hasn't been a Valarian that you really can go, oh, that guy, that guy was really interesting. That guy did a lot. That guy was a real good guy. That guy was a real hero. The record of master of ships, not just Valarians, but master of ships between Oakenfist and Lucerius Valarian, the master of ships for Ares II, nothing. We got nothing. Fire and Blood 2 is what we're missing here. Fire and Blood 1 is the reason we know so much about these early times, plus the Dance of the Dragons being such a key, well-detailed era. 
it's this. It's the lack of Fire and Blood 2. So once one day we'll have Fire and Blood 2, we'll be able to come back and fill a lot of this in, not just for Valarian, but for a lot of other things. But yeah, we just have, we don't know who the master ships were during any of this time, really. We don't know who the Lord Valarian was during any of these times. But also, they're just not as powerful. They're just not effective on the national scene. They're not, not as big a deal. Under Baylor the Blessed. I got nothing, really. Nina wrote a couple paragraphs here. Let's see what she has to say. She wrote, I'd be curious whether Alan Oakenfist was one of the, quote, other members of the court who protested when Baylor confined his sisters to the Maiden Vault. Yeah, Baylor confined his sisters, Elena, Dana, the Defiant, and Reyna to the Maiden Vault, locked them in the tower there. Well, Alan and Elena were an item, right? So if they had already had an attraction towards each other at that early time... Well, that seems unlikely because she was only 11 right then. Yeah, you're right. He was much older. It's probably not that likely. People did object to it because it's a bad idea to lock up Targaryen princesses rather than marry them to houses that will become your ally. I mean, without commenting on the goodness of that system of marrying women to create political allies is clearly effective. <laughs> As a, you know, it's, it's unethical, but it's effective, in, especially in this setting. So he may have just been, a, he may have objected just because it's a bad idea. Oh, this is a bad idea for the regime. You know, we don't have dragons anymore. And you're doing this? Usually we had dragons and princesses to help shore up our alliances. Now we, what do we have? Neither now? Come on, man. All we have is your prayers? Come on, bro. Your prayers aren't going to cut it. But I like the idea of Oakenfist being someone that, who had existed in the time before. He was a little older in this era during Baylor's time. He would have been old, an older man by this time, an experienced person rather than a teenager who was kind of an up-and-comer. He'd have been arguing from experience if indeed he was one of the people on this side of the argument. He may have just been off at sea doing one of his voyages. He may not have. He may have missed all this. <laughs> he may have been gone for it. Neen also says, I also wonder to what extent Baylor's reign made Alan Valerian restless and perhaps more willing to take on a risky last voyage. My point exactly. Baylor's reign was not ideal for men of action, for men of adventure. He was a pacifist. He, was, he wanted to change things internally. And well... As good as some of those changes may have been for the realm, they're not exactly fun. <laughs> Oakenfist was an adventurer. He had been in multiple wars. He was an explorer. Reforming the realm to be more good, maybe not the best role for him. He may not have had a place in that scheme and, and maybe didn't want to have a place in that scheme. He's like, I'm getting the hell out of here where they can't make me do this boring stuff. I want to go have adventures instead of, man, maybe that's what got him killed. Anita suggests maybe even that's, why he went so far away. <laughs> it took too many risks and never came back. I'm imagining him like Michael Scott, like, I don't know, <laughs> Jan and Oscar trying to run the kingdom <laughs> passively. Michael's, oh, I can't fun anymore. Because <laughs> HR. Yeah, HR <laughs> wants us to be good and pray. And HR is, yeah, Toby is Baylor. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> egg on the fourth, egg on the unworthy. Oakenfist died either right at the beginning of Aegon the Fourth's reign or during the brief one-year reign of Viserys II, who was, you know, Aegon the Fourth's father. So it doesn't really matter which should happen, because again, that happened out at sea. No one would have, no one knows exactly. As an aside, what a horrible thing when you're like the wife of someone in that spot. Like, when do you decide, okay, they're gone? When do you give up? You can't. Like, you just, part of your head is going to be like, there's always a chance they sail back into port today, you know, even though it's been years, like you can't, party would probably never give up, you know, that's awful. Aegon IV, of course, was a terrible king, not just because of all his bastards and giving Blackfire to Damon Blackfire, Damon Waters, who became Damon Blackfire, 
But he also tried to invade Dorne, just like Daron the First. Well, not just like Daron the First. <laughs> in fact, it was in many ways the opposite of like Daron the First, because Daron the First, at least conquest, was effective. The management afterwards, not so much, but the actual conquest was effective. Aegon the Fourth's conquest belongs in quotes because it was so pitiful, so pathetic. He sent. Not only did he send these wooden dragons that shot wildfire out, which, yeah, that worked as bad as well as you can imagine, <laughs> which is, and he was going to roll them into Dorne, like through those passes, those mountain passes. Like, yeah, just roll those right in. They didn't even get that far. But he also sent a fleet, because at least that party was right about, because we saw that was necessary from Oakenfist's perspective. So maybe he at least learned that much. But in this part, he was just unlucky. Storms scattered the fleet. This is the Royal Fleet. This is the Royal Fleet post-Valarian era, but it still may have been a Valarian master ships. It may have been a Valarian in charge, may have been some of their ships included, but it just wasn't a Valarian fleet only. That, that's the distinction we can be pretty sure about. Oakenfist might have been around here. Yes, he was lost at sea in this era, but it's a wide range of that. So he may have been, A, the one who suggested this. He may have been like, or been against it. He's like, look, this is a bad time. Wait till it's not storm season or something. Aegon didn't listen. Aegon didn't care. Whatever it was, Aegon failed. Under Aegon's son, Daron II, we got Blackfire rebellions getting started several years into his reign. Maybe this is why House Valarian doesn't have a lot of role, because for one thing, the Blackfire rebellions were overwhelmingly land-based wars. There's no naval battles at all that we hear of during any of the Blackfire rebellions. Maybe some happened in the... I could see some happening in the in the fifth because that ha- took place in the Stepstones, which is there's islands. Like, there had to be some naval incursions here and there. But obviously, that's way later. That's the fifth Blackfire Rebellion, which is only 40 years before the start of the books. Whereas Daron here, we're talking 120 years before the books, just about. I don't have all the details of the Blackfire Rebellions in my brains. I don't think it would apply to the first two, but the third and fourth would have required people coming across the ocean. Yes, very good call, yes. Now, if they do it somehow without anyone knowing, then maybe naval presence doesn't matter. But it does seem like they potentially could have been intercepted at sea if they had the right intelligence, if they had the right naval preparedness to respond to that. You are absolutely right. In fact, it was a big problem a big complaint against Bloodraven when Dagon Greyjoy, his uprising happened. He was ravaging the West and was really effective at it. He was a very cagey, very smart leader, very cunning. They complained. They're like, send the Royal Fleet over here to help. And he's like, no. Bloodraven's like, no, I'm not doing it because I'm worried about the Blackfires crossing. As soon as we send the fleet over there, the Blackfires are going to take advantage of our absence. So he took a lot of guff for that. And the Valarians of that era... Well, they sat there waiting for Blood Raven's orders. The and Blackfire Three, we don't know what happened there. They clearly got across somehow and did their thing. Supposedly, there was some great betrayal by Toron Greyjoy. Toron Greyjoy betrayed Bittersteel. This might have been the fourth Blackfire Rebellion. We don't know which which he betrayed him during. But that you're you're absolutely right that both the third and fourth Blackfire Rebellions involved crossings and escapes afterwards. The, either the Valarian, the Royal Fleet wasn't powerful enough to stop them, maybe because the Blackfires were able to amass sufficient naval strength to brute force their army across 
or they just snuck across. It's not exactly far. It's a lot of sea to patrol, right? There's a lot of True, sneaky ways. Yeah. They could, a lot of places they could land. They could find just one castle willing to take them on. You know, they could, you know, what are you going to do? You can't just have your whole armada out at sea at all times waiting for this. Yeah. Mm. Maybe the Valarians were just like bitter. They were like, well, you don't want us to have the Royal Fleet anymore? Fine. See if your fleet can do it on its own. You know? And I love that idea because Bitter Steel probably tried to reach out to them. Was like, hey, wouldn't you rather take our side? Wouldn't you rather? Yeah, we'll make you the Royal Fleet again. We'll, we'll give you, restore that honor to you. We'll restore your lost glory to you. Take on, be a Blackfire supporter instead. And you could say, look, the Blackfires are Targaryen blood. You're still serving the same house you did. You know, you could still be on the winning team. You could still become master of ships again. Yeah, so there's a lot of things he could say that might have won them over. Depending on who was in charge at the time, it might have might have come close to working. That would have been an interesting, like, little side under the radar story that if you're bitter steel and you know Blood Raven's holding the fleet back to protect your crossing, well, that's one thing you can try to do other than to amass a larger fleet. You can try to turn that fleet to your side. Bribery, promises of gifts, or just bribe them to stay out of it. You don't even have to take our side. Just be like, just, you didn't see it. You didn't see us. We didn't, yeah, I, I was looking. I missed them. I was trying to stop them. I, they got across. I, what can I do? What can I do? Yeah. I like, I really like the idea that Bitter Steel reached out to them and was like, hey, y'all, why don't you come over to our side? Boy, if that had worked, there really would have been a hammering to the, <laughs> to the Reds. I can still see the Valarians not going along with that. It's one thing to, to be bitter and not put forth your full effort to support the powers that be. It's another to turn against the powers of beast. Yeah. Nina's got some more, some more takes here. These I really like. She says, given that we have yet to hear anything about an attempt to blockade King's Landing during the first Blackfire Rebellion, my guess would be that the Blackfire forces didn't have naval strength. Either the Valarians weren't on their side or weren't on anyone's side. If the Blackfires were primarily supported by the Reach, which we know to be true. The Reach was the, the key supporters of Blackfires. They may have been hoping for the Red Wine fleet, but the Red Wines, like they did in the Dance of the Dragons and the War of the Five Kings, may have just been like, eh, Civil War, we're not getting involved. So they may have hoped for that support and it just didn't, just didn't materialize. Nina also says, we do hear about the Blackfires at some point trying to ally with, I called him Toron, but it's Torwin Greyjoy. This... Torwin, not Toron. I tend to think this happened during the planning of the fourth Blackfire Rebellion as the Blackfire forces abroad had become more desperate for victory. If two prior former Blackfire Rebellions had failed to take the capital, maybe Bittersteel reasoned that the problem was naval and that if they could not win over the Valarian fleet, they could use the Greyjoy fleet either to distract the Valarians or at least, yeah, they could at least maybe attack the High Towers and keep them out of it or, or the Red Wines or something. However, Nina says, I don't think the Greyjoys ever bothered to engage the Valarians at this point, with Torwin Greyjoy perhaps realizing that it was a much better bet to side with Aegon V than with the Blackfires and maybe just sitting out. So I, I, I like that idea. I think maybe the betrayal was during the third Blackfire Rebellion, not the fourth. I like Nina's idea, but I lean towards the third, partly because Bittersteel didn't escape. He was captured and then escaped on his way to the wall <laughs> rather than after the battle, whereas after the battle of the fourth, he immediately escaped back on the ships they came on, which implies he had a way home. Maybe that's what went wrong after the third one is that was the betrayal of the Greyjoys was their escape route or not their only use. I doubt they hired the Greyjoys or got the Greyjoys just in case we need an escape route. But 
one of their duties was an escape route, and then they l- abandoned the cause when it was going badly. But that's just one idea out of many possibilities. I was starting to think, by the way, what or how much the Valerians could have helped. What, what, how much difference their fleet? Like, obviously, like just their presence or a fleet's presence is enough to stop Bittlesteel from trying to come across. But if they can sneak across anyway, but I, I started to realize that maybe I'm, I'm making numbers up a little bit, but let's say Bittersteel was able to raise an army of 15,000, but it only had enough ships for 5,000, yeah. <sighs> you know, or maybe ships carrying 5,000 troops, he could sneak across ships carrying 15,000 troops. Too he big. can't sneak yeah. across. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Also if think about this when the Valarians were more powerful on the world stage with their trade deals, they could be like, Hey, Tyrosh, if you keep harboring these black fires, I don't know if we can keep doing business with you. The threat to remove your business doesn't mean that much if you're a small player. It's like, if I tell Walmart, I'm ever shopping there again, they're like, I don't care. But if I'm like the supplier, like if I'm buying like thousands of widgets a month from them and we're like, well, we got to revisit our business deal, they might be like, oh, hold up there. Hold on. (laughs) Let's work this out. You know? So I feel like when they were in the era of dragons, a threat to stop doing business with an entire city the top merchants and like the merchant princes of that city would really be like, wait, 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 hold up, hold up. But in this era, a Valarian threat might not have those teeth. It might not be so big a deal. So let's jump big time. Big jump to Ares II, where we hear of Lord Lucerius Valarian, master of ships. He was one of the so-called Lickspittle lords. This guy does not give the Valarians a good name. He stayed loyal to Ares even when Robert arose. And he even seemed to favor Ares over Rhaegar. So this guy, not great judgment, I seem. This doesn't seem like. Maybe one of those guys that manipulated Ares to get what he wanted, or maybe he was just kind of like him. I don't know. Nina says, this does make me wonder the extent to which the Prince of Dragonstone exercised political slash feudal power over the Valarians and other narrow sea lords. Because, yeah, that's a really good catch by Nina. Rhaegar's the Prince of Dragonstone. The lords of the narrow sea are sworn to Dragonstone. But this Lucerius Valarian still favored Ares over Rhaegar. So that, that is, that's not just the favoring the king over the prince. That's favoring the king over his own overlord. So, that, some, so not just the personality. It's this, the rank structure here is a little, makes you, hmm, what's going on there? Because House Valarian is sworn to Stannis now. And that's what it would have been then too. They would have been sworn to Dragonstone, as they've always been. So that's pretty interesting. And they also, of course, didn't, you know, they, they didn't switch over even before. They went down with the ship. Ha ha, that's what they're supposed <laughs> to do. You also wonder what was going on with the Valarians during the time when they were looking for a bride for Rhaegar. Were they no longer worthy because they had their, how, their fortune had fallen so far? Or they just maybe just didn't have any daughters. That, it's entirely possible they just didn't have a daughter for Rhaegar. But maybe they just lost the prestige required for that. And they're like, yeah, we don't, you guys just aren't fancy and famous enough anymore for Targaryen. We just, we got to have someone from a more prestige, a prestigious house. Maybe they fall, maybe that's just the state of things. Or maybe this lord who was siding with Aegon over Rhaegar didn't want his daughter to marry Rhaegar. Ah, maybe. Yeah, was- maybe. That's possible. He Because, yeah, maybe he saw, maybe he foresaw the this conflict and thought Rhaegar would lose. And so... <laughs> or that's that's looking way far ahead, but still, it's possible. He may have been Lord when Ares was talking about building a fleet to conquer Bravos, which just really stretches the credulity of this guy supporting Ares, given all the insane things Ares said over the years. But maybe he liked that. Maybe that's a good thing. He's like, well, if Ares builds a larger fleet, he's the master of ships. 
that's more power for him. He's the one in charge of that fleet. So you can see why he would want that. And you can see why having a crazy person in charge might actually be to the benefit of someone who's on their council because you can manipulate that crazy person into doing things that are good for you. Or that guy was the father of this guy. Lucerius, the one who... Lucerius's father may have been the guy that was around when Ares was talking about building a fleet to conquer Bravos. Either way, this Lucerius Valorian, we have no idea when he died. We just know he's not Lord at the beginning of the books because we have this Monford Valarian who we had in the opening quote that Davos was looking on like, well, he's too fancy for me to talk to. Robert ordered Stannis to build a fleet to challenge Dragonstone when the war was kind of over, but there were still holdouts. When Daenerys was still on Dragonstone, she'd been born and William Derry was there and Viserys was there and they hadn't fled yet. But remember the storm a.k.a. the storm in Stormborn, hit Dragonstone and wrecked most of the Targaryen fleet. How much of that Targaryen fleet was Valarian? Did they, were, did they have some of those ships there too? Or were they just sitting back helpless throughout all this, like, all of our stuff is wrecked. We can't, we're not part of any of this anymore. We're just helpless on the sideline. The war has taken out what little we had. And maybe I, this killed Lord Dragonstone Lord and, and Driftmark are close enough yeah. that the same storm that goes to one hits the other. Whether they had their ships with the fleet or not, they still might have lost their ships. Good point. I mean, and maybe Lord Lucerius died in this storm. Maybe that's what took him out. Either way, the Valarians bent the knee to House Baratheon of Dragonstone, and Stannis was named Master of Ships and Lord Admiral under Robert and Prince of Dragonstone. So the Valarians from that point on are sworn to the Baratheons, which go back a couple hundred years and boy, that would be offensive to the Valarians. They'd be like, what? (laughs) (laughs) What? To them? To those upstarts, that young house. And then of course that's relevant because Stannis led the Royal Fleet all the way around to fight the Greyjoys and the Greyjoy Rebellion. He did a really good job of it, as best as we're told. And we hear not a peep of the Valarians' involvement in that. They probably were, but more like in a subordinate to Stannis thing where like they had some ships, some commanders, but that just gets swallowed up by history because they weren't big enough, high enough on the old totem pole or low enough on the totem pole. However, that is supposed to work. (laughs) All right. Our last section, recent times and outlook. Let's have a quote. Nearby, Lord Keltigar coughed fitfully and covered his wrinkled face with a square of linen embroidered in red crabs. The mirrormen swapped jokes as they enjoyed the warmth of the fire, but young Lord Bar Emin had turned a splotchy gray, and Lord Valarian was watching the king rather than the conflagration. Davos would have given much to know what he was thinking, but one such as Valarian would never confide in him. The Lord of the Tides was of the blood of ancient Valyria, and his house had thrice provided brides for Targaryen princes. Davos Seaworth stank of fish and onions. Yeah, the three brides, of course, to review. Daenerys, Alyssa, and Valena, presumably, right? Or did I miss one? Now, Valena, it's interesting because Valena might be stretching it because she wouldn't, she wasn't a Targaryen prince at Uh, that time. Well, there's Lena as well, because Lena married yeah. Tar- Damon. Yeah, as a Damon prince. was a Targaryen prince. Yeah, that's true. So maybe that's the other Damon one. Yes, that's the third prince, one. Because, yeah, I guess you are right that he wasn't a Targaryen prince when Valena married her husband. So. Yeah, so more than three marriages to the Targaryens, at least at least four. Yeah. Well, because we, we also have, you know, Alan and Bela. So, like, that, that's, a, that's obviously not the same gender, but regardless, it's a Targaryen Valarian marriage. Good point. Good point. To a Targaryen so, princess. So at least five, <laughs> <laughs> probably more. Where are they now? 
Okay, where are the Valerians now? What's their outlook? Where are they doing? What's their deal? Most of them are with Stannis. Like we said, Monfort died on the Blackwater with his flagship, bravely took out two ships with him. But again, not in charge of the fleet. He wasn't in charge. It was Sir Imri Florent. And why was Imri Florent in charge? Because the Florents are Stannis' in-laws. They're his wife's family. Lisa's family gets the job, not the house that's probably more qualified. <laughs> that's how these things tend to work. As we know, lots of nepotism, lots of nepotism. What kind of manpower and naval power do they have? Well, they lost their flagship on the Blackwater. They probably haven't had time to build a new one or money to build a new one. They lost other ships there too, probably. And more losses likely to come in the North. The majority of their men are up there. And Stan has only brought 1,500 men North. So like, they're only a few hundred Valarian men, probably. They're probably pretty weak at the moment and probably likely to lose more. I mean, Stannis isn't exactly going to get through all this without casualties. <laughs> they ostensibly would have accepted R'hllor as their religion now, right? Ostensibly, yes. But as you can see from that quote, like Sunglass didn't do it and Melisandre burned him for that. And Valarian, as you can see from the quote, he was looking at Stannis, not the conflagration. So yeah, they, they didn't want to get burned by Melisandre. But that doesn't mean they like earnestly have accepted R'hllor. Yeah. And we have a boy lord. So we really don't know what he's thinking. He's not with the army. He's a boy. He didn't go north. Oh, yeah. Did, did, wasn't there a brother? There is a bastard brother. Did or, he go north? Or, is he in the north? No, there is Orain Waters, who's the pirate lord. Oh, he's the brother. He's the bastard wow. brother of Monford. Monteris is the lord right now, but he's a boy. And a young boy, even. Like, very young. So, yeah, let's talk about Orain briefly. We've talked about Orain a few times, but this is a slightly different context. So, yeah, he's the brother of Monford, bastard brother. Probably engaged in piracy on the Stepstones. Has a real pirate fleet. Ten warships. Not just ships. Warships. They were built by Cersei to be the largest ships in the fleet, and he took them. He could theoretically overwhelm Driftmark. He could conquer his own ancestral keep with what he has, because what little strength they have is north with Stannis. He's got these big old warships, right? They're also crude, right? Yeah. I don't know how well crude, but... They're crude, and Pycelle was complaining to Cersei at council about the type of men he was hiring. He's like, I don't trust these guys he's hiring, and sure enough, Pycelle was right. Orain's like, I hired these guys because I knew they'd be cool with us <laughs> stealing the ships and running off to become pirates. Aha, yes, he, he, he thought ahead on that one. Now, there's a couple of ways this he could go, though. One, he could make a play to be with the Connington faction, you'd be like, look, young Griff, you guys are trying to play like your Targaryens. What are the, one of the big things that Aegon VI is trying to do is appear Targaryen, right? Wrap himself in the trappings of Targaryen symbolism. Blackfire. We had Ryan Condal say the same thing that we've been saying for years. They've got Blackfire. Most likely they're going to put it in his hands at an opportune time to make it look like he's really a Targaryen. To look, he's re- make him really look like Rhaegar's son. He's going to have maybe a Dane at his side, Darkstar, to to make people think of Arthur Dane at Rhaegar's side. If he has House Valarian at his side, like the Targaryens have traditionally had, Orain Waters legitimized and called Orain Valarian with a big fleet of warships, he looks like a a Valarian. Cersei was like daydreaming, looking at him like, ah, he looks like Rhaegar, Mm, handsome. That could be one route that we could really see happen. That's straightforward. Like he joins with that faction. They take him on. He fits in pretty well. They need some ships. He can be their new Valarian Lord. What's this boy Lord going to do for the Connington Aegon the Sixth faction? 
they can just kick him to the side, right? He's too young. Like, it's, this is, we need a man in charge, right? Or similar scenario, but with Daenerys. Driftmark next to Dragonstone. Danny maybe encounters him in the Stepstones on her way back, right? He's set up in the Stepstones. Maybe they encounter each other. The things he's doing might make her an enemy of her, which might make him even more likely to join the Connington faction. But he could win Danny's eye. He's also, because he's handsome and has Valyrian blood, she might fall for him, not necessarily romantically, but maybe. Or just look at him like a potential ally. She doesn't know that he's a pirate, doesn't know the things he's done. She has no idea. She hasn't been exposed to his misdeeds of the past. She, and he could lie his way into her good graces. Even Tyrion if won't he know does, he is. If he does become an enemy of her, it might be hard for him to escape and do something else. She that's true. down on her dragons. Yeah, um, that's true. But he also might be an ally of her, even if he's done some shady things, especially if she's part of her arc is to learn compromise, even bad compromises. She, I can imagine she might do like sell her soul along the way, you know, but the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Like even if she thinks of him as a bad guy, but he's an enemy to Cersei, Cersei's my enemy. Okay, he's my friend. I can see that happening too. So here's another theory that we've discussed before that Nina reminds us of. Remember that there is a crippled ship called Elephant that was sighted at the at Hardhome. Remember, Hardhome had two ships full of women and children, Lysine ships full of women and children that they said they were rescuing, but they actually wanted to carry off into slavery. And we know this because one of them had to stop at Bravos. So all the crew got freed. All those, all those potential slaves were let go because Bravos doesn't do that. Bravos doesn't play that way, and they figured out what was going on. The other ship was last seen heading through the Stepstones, the Elephant. Remember, what did Alan Valerian do when the True Heart was sank in battle? He went back and was celebrated in part because he captured an elephant in the Stepstones. He captured a live elephant when he sank the Sea Lord's prize ship. And so this might just be a coincidence, but it might be George being playful, like Danny, while passing through the Stepstones, could encounter the ship Elephant, or maybe more likely Orane Waters will. What is Orane Waters going to do when a leaky, helpless ship full of slaves passes through his territory? Is he just going to be nice, let it go? No, he's going to probably take it for himself. And whoever takes the Elephant, if this is a connection to anyone at all, is going to learn about what happened up north, which is why it's a great idea for Danny to be the one who encounters this ship one way or another, because it will enable her to hear... Not only that there's stuff going on at Hardhome, there's dangerous things happening in the North, but there's slavery happening up there, which she would maybe want to go put an end to. Because, well, we know why Danny would want to put an end to slavery. That's, that's one thing she is all about doing. So I know I've said this theory before, but it comes back around here. Good time to remind you all that this is a strong possibility. So either or a lot of moving parts here, but the end result, one way or another, the ship full of slaves that's been to the North, that's seen hard home, that's, that's maybe even heard news of Jon Snow and other things that are going up there, like giants and whoever, who knows what else, whites, the undead, like all sorts of news that has both, one has gone to Bravos and one is in the Stepstones. And in the Stepstones, it could either get to Orain or Danny or Orain then Danny or Danny and then who knows who else. So there's a lot of great possibilities here. And House Valarian, one way or another, this is going to put House Valarian back into an important spot because Orain Waters is obviously very wrapped up in this. And what he does after that, whether it's become the new Lord of the Tides, whether it becomes a, he becomes a contender for Lord of the Tides on one of the factions, 
or who knows, well, it's going to be important. It's going to be cool. And they have their own history to contend with on this side. This is, if we look at it from House Valarian's perspective, wouldn't they want to get back to the place where they were at their best? They were at their best when they were attached to the Targaryens when the Targaryens had dragons. You're going to yeah. say that, right, Sean? That, yeah, that with, with dragons, yeah. So if the choice is laid out before them, they would maybe be like, Danny, yeah, her, she has dragons. Do that. But the choice may not come to them like evenly. It might be like, oh, the Golden Company is here now. Aegon the Six is here now. Orion Waters may not have even heard of Danny. So he might be like, okay, I'm joining them. But he could join them and then flip. He could abandon them for Danny, or he could join Danny and abandon her for them. But I, although that seems less likely because she's going to be so powerful. It seems like a lot of convenient convergences could happen with these pieces. But it also seems like a lot of ironic tragedies could be set up with all these pieces yes. too, right? Yeah. People not encountering each other or encountering each other in the wrong order or misreading their role or their intentions and alliances. It would have been, you know, marriages made in heaven instead becoming enemies. And yeah, it seems like it will, they will interplay, but I'm suspicious of how convenient and happy it will all turn out. Yeah, me too. And it's exciting because there are a lot of like very valid, you could see a lot of very valid possible. It's not just like, oh, the, clearly this is going to happen because it's like, what else could happen? Like, no, there's a lot of a lot of ways it's going to Like you said, the order of things yeah. is huge here and who meets who first and yeah, who learns what first, what information they have at the time when they're making their decisions. What if Danny just shows up on Dragonstone and Orion Waters is off doing something else or he dies elsewhere or and he just, you've got this boy lord next door on Driftmark where Danny just shows up and he's like, Whoever's regent for him would be like, well, we're not fighting her, whatever happens. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) so let's send a ship over and be like, yeah, bend the knee, you know? So having, remember the old proximity thing works in reverse this time when they're not, we're not this big, powerful Navy. (laughs) Like, yeah, we need to, they just landed with Dothraki and cell swords. And is that unsullied? Is that 8,000 unsullied they have? Okay, we got to be friends with these guys. We cannot... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> go against that. And they could see that as an opportunity. Like, all right, a powerful Targaryen with dragon, Not just a Targaryen with dragons, but a powerful Targaryen with armies and an intent to take the throne. Getting along on that, getting on and that run. And with the Navy already, too. Yes. Right? Yeah. Like, if they're going to come across all those forces, I don't know if they will get to do that, but... So they, this is an opportunity for them to maybe like, yeah, we can become the hereditary master of ships again, or at least get in the good graces of this new queen. You know, so it's an, an opportunity to, to rise high again, an opportunity to climb that ladder once again. They don't want Paxter Redwine to still be master of ships. I mean, he's master of ships for Tommen, so that's probably not going to last anyway. But still, they want it. They want the Valarians have had that title more than anyone else. You'd think they want it back as well as the things that come with it. You know, restored fortunes, restored honors, restored wealth. Maybe they could never get back to where they used to be, but they can do better than they've done for the last century. And I have to think that that's the goal of House Valarian, that they would want to do that. If Danny, similar to Stannis, realizes she needs to go north, there's this greater threat that she needs to address mm-hmm. beyond... I want to be queen. She gets, if she understands that if they encounter this slave ship and realize that both slavery, which she's worried about and an existential threat of the white walkers are in the North 
And it, it doesn't even matter if you take your throne back if you if that's happening. You deal with that first. And then goes north, maybe allies with Stannis, at least temporarily. But the problem is we're already seeing Stannis, who was a, a little more aware and prepared, struggling in this winter weather. Mm, right? Yes. Yes. They're starving and freezing to death. If Danny shows up with Unsullied and Dothraki, like people from these warm climates that aren't, they don't have coats and for, like food, like all the things, like it might not be realistic or worthwhile for her to bring those armies up there or might turn into a terrible tragedy of sorts. Yeah, bring you know? some of them, the ones that handle it better. But yeah, she may not think of that, may just bring them all because she's not the most experienced military commander ever, right? <laughs> that's, that's something yeah. that comes up frequently. We, we talk a lot when we, we talk about her chapters, how forthright she is but yeah but she's also inexperienced and, and a lot of her counselors aren't super experienced either that's it's some of and know. even whatever experience that stannis and all those other leaders and troops surrounding him they're all still stuck up there in this terrible <laughs> yeah. winter weather you know yeah, what i mean yeah. even the quote-unquote experienced ones they're not actually handling it particularly well either karen targaryen spelled K-A-E-R-Y-N. That is the Targaryen spelling of Karen. I like that. Karen Hightower says, at least seven Valarian plus Targaryen marriages because there's also Laenor and Rhaenyra and Corlys and Rhaenys. Yeah, those are princesses or queen in one case there or queen who never was <laughs> in that case as well. So that's a good point. Yeah, so there are others. And as we also said, there's probably some more that aren't recorded, but surely happened. Julie A says, History of Westeros, what does the convention calendar look like for 2023? What are y'all going to? Okay, great question. Well, Shea is going to MAGFest next week. That's not, a, his, that's not a Game of Thrones convention, but it is on the schedule. Yeah, that's a video game convention, music and gaming. And so I'll be there if you'll be there too. But, uh, you know, I'm just there for fun, not as History of Westeros. Ice and FireCon is near the end of April. We'll be going to that as per usual. We're hoping for a Con of Thrones to return. Con of Thrones yeah. has been talking on social media like they're being a little cagey, like, yeah, we're starting to fire up the old social media again, which may imply there's a bigger announcement coming. But we certainly expect them to get back into the Game of Thrones convention business because they still, Mischief Management still runs conventions. They do other fandom conventions that never stopped for them except when COVID was at its worst. So kind of the last Con of Thrones was years ago, but it was a success. So I, I imagine they're thinking about getting into it, but we haven't actually heard anything directly from them. So we'll see. That seems not unlikely. We'll certainly go to Dragon Con again. We always go to Dragon Con. That's our local convention here in Atlanta. That's always Labor Day. It's September. funny that your local convention is 100,000 people. Yeah, our local <laughs> convention. Yeah. And yeah, and I hope we'll be going to San Diego Comic Con. Yeah, we might go to, we'd like to go to back to Comic Con. That one's a little more least, expensive. Or at least my goal is for if Aziz can't, if we can only make one of us go, then I will go and cover it very thoroughly mm -hmm. like I do. Because yeah, I, I really liked covering the Hall H stuff. I don't know. It, it was it was my kind of speed of convention. Like Aziz clearly enjoyed it too, but like, I, I agree. Pretty, if only was, one of us goes, you would, you I, would cover I, it better than I me. document. I, like I was really like all the like, experiences and like there was a lot of vlogging stuff i don't know it was a little different to like a dragon con or something like that yeah. there was actually like a lot of footage and stuff for me to capture anyway so i am like pretty there's a chance determined. we do world con but not as likely yeah i don't think that's as likely world like, con is we you know we had been wanting to go back to world con but george hasn't been going yeah george doesn't and go anymore they've had a 
They had a little bit of a falling out. A little out. bit of a falling um, out, which is really unfortunate because yeah, and that and because that's George's home, like his convention, you know, his yeah. main main convention. So it's honestly a real bummer for him to not be attending. So I, I genuinely, not even just for my selfish reasons, I, I hope for his own sake and and all that that they make it work and he does attend a future world con but i don't know if he'll be attending one in the next year or two and so it's unlikely for us to fly for a convention if there's if he's not there yeah and there's potentially another official hbo game of oh yeah i don't know you would think so, that yeah, that would, would be a yearly thing the yeah, one that we help. just went to in la oh, i thought of something else that'll be happening potentially there's going to be the game of thrones dragons attraction in las vegas oh it's yeah very mysterious what it's going to be or when it's going to launch but when that launches we'll definitely be making a trip to vegas I'm assuming it's not something really dinky or something and it's yeah. worth yeah, it yeah, yeah. but that'll be an attraction in las vegas some sort of some sort of dragony stage show i guess but the most Game of Thrones-centric and certain thing that we're going to is Ice and Fire yeah. Con, which is April. Yeah. The last April. weekend of April, exactly. Yeah. And there yeah. are still tickets. You can, you know, mention the code history. It helps us. It helps you all around. But yeah, we'll definitely be at Ice and Fire Con. That's my favorite time of the year. So. Yeah. So we hope to see some of you there, if not that convention, at other conventions and, and future live streams. Yeah, and to answer you, Ron Beer, any conventions in the UK or EU, if George announced that he was going to like Worldcon in Scotland, then yeah. But I don't think he's going to announce Worldcon in Scotland, so unlikely. Yeah. And of course, European conventions are a lot more expensive for us to travel yeah. to. That is, of course, always a strong consideration. Trivia question. The question was, who does Sansa consider the handsomest person she's ever met? The answer, Renly. Shiera Seastar guessed it right. And this really says a lot because she thinks Renly is the handsomest person she ever met. What does that say about Robert, who in his prime was even handsomer by Westerosi standards because he was the same, but bigger and stronger. <laughs> anyway, we've mentioned a lot of episodes that tie into this one, or you can look at the other way, that those tie into this one. The Oakenfist episode, the Sea Snake episode, the episode on the Free City of Lists, the episode on the Stepstones, many of our episodes on the Blackfire Rebellions, especially the early ones. Daron, the first episode, the one that we did right before House of the Dragon season, and our scripted content on the Dance of the Dragons, which has a bit more of the war stuff during the dance with Corlys and the build up to that. So lots more additional listening for y'all to enjoy until we come back next week with our episode on Danielle. With, or with Daniel. Yeah, it's all about him. It's all about him. Yeah. <laughs> no, it'll be good. I'm excited that Sean gets to react to that episode. I'm almost done editing it right now. And yeah. By the way, yeah. what is that episode about? By the way, it's about historical families that might fit into the world of ice and fire, right? That is sort the, of. It's more like the topic. Or? It's, that's sort of it. It's more like how realistic are the behaviors of the characters in House of the Dragon in terms of in terms questing of for the throne, in terms of families. Yeah, in terms of how they okay. behave. Yeah, like murdering each other and plotting against each other. Like, how realistic is that in the real world? And we have a lot of examples to show that quite, it's quite realistic, minus the, the dragon's part, obviously. But the dragon's part doesn't change a whole lot <laughs> in terms of this aspect of it. There's still power to be fought over. And yeah, with or without the dragons, the power is still there to squabble over. The inheritance is the, the acclaim, the, sure. the, the not wanting to bend the knee to your own siblings, things like that. I'm sure there's a lot of, stuff to talk about, but I, I, I'm most interested in the Romanovs. I imagine that there's a lot of parallels there. I we didn't actually end up talking about the Romanovs. No? We didn't oh, get to them. There were so many good families. We talked about 
some Viking families. We talked about some Japanese families. We talked about uh, Mongols. We talked about the Macedonians. We talked about a little bit of Roman here and there. But yeah, it was we we, we had the Romanoffs on the own whole episode. Yeah. That's we had them on the list, but we just, by the time we got to them, we had so many notes on these other ones. We're like, yeah. well, we'll just, yeah, some other time. You're right. There's, there's no shortage of examples in throughout history. That's yeah. Well, once again, the answer was yes, it is realistic, <laughs> but going through the details as to why is, is the fun. That's it's, the answer isn't as interesting as the why it's a yes. And to prop up Daniele Bellelli, by the way, I think he might be my most listened to podcast. Oh, maybe, right. I don't know. He, but he picks all kinds of historical events and characters to cover and yeah i i love his his attitude his accent his research his thoroughness is kind of sets the stage for things i went my favorite little bits of media i've ever consumed was his episode on joan of arc nice you know, and you know what's funny is the episode we did with him the first time which we called history on blood and fire or history on fire and blood because it's history his show is called history on fire so it was, you know that worked out nicely was january 18th 2018 it's going to be nine days short of five years that this episode releases. <laughs> so almost exactly five years apart. So that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Milestone of that. And it just goes to show how long we've been doing this. Five years ago, we had been doing this for more than five years. <laughs> so yeah, crazy. Uh, pretty cool, huh? About the same though. This is our 10th year. We're in our 10th year of podcasting. And that's pretty cool. Here's to another 10 and more after that. We are... At this rate, we, we just don't feel like we'll ever run out of things to talk about. And it doesn't seem like yeah. that's, that's approaching. Here's to another hundred. Yeah, hundreds of years. Yes. <laughs> I would love that. if I had another hundred years in me. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you to Nina for the great notes, great insight on House Valarian and related topics. Thanks to a lot of you all for your thoughts as well that helped spur the discussion, whether live or in advance. Thank you to anyone who has signed up to be a recurring supporter of us on Patreon or Spotify. You can do that for a pretty small monthly amount. Support your show. If you listen to us regularly, maybe consider it's time to sign up for that, but especially because you'll get additional episodes with your subscription. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for our intro music. Thanks to Michael Clarfeld for the great maps you see behind us and his general work in the fandom, creating maps and uh, using folks as models for his maps. It's a fun thing. If you want to be a model for a Michael Clarfeld map, come to our Facebook group and we'll we'll send you over to the the subgroup for that where... Model uh, Earth. Yeah, Model Earth it's called. And happy holidays. Happy 2023, everybody. However you celebrate, however you're looking forward to next year, however you're looking back on last year, we're with you. And we'll I was going to say, looking coming. forward to next year. I was like, I'm embracing this year. I'm not thinking about 2024 yet. <laughs> <laughs> next, looking forward to this year. The yeah, rest this of this year, year. <laughs> we've just barely gotten started. I'm already forgetting things, yeah. calling it next year, I'm like <laughs> skipping it over. Apparently, I have some work to do. Yeah, get with the times. Yeah. <laughs> time. Here's to a month of writing 2022 on things when you meant to write. Yeah, <laughs> that's real talk right there. Yeah, that's 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 how you know. You're living it. Okay, everyone. We'll see you next week with more. And you know what to do in the meantime. Velar, re-read us. <laughs>